السلام عليكم ورحمة الله وبركاته بسم الله الرحمن الرحيم الحمد لله نحمده ونستعينه ونستغفره ونعوذ بالله من شرور أنفسنا ومن سيئات أعمالنا من يهده الله فلا مضل له ومن يضلل فلا هادي له وأشهد أن لا إله إلا الله وحده لا شريك له وأشهد أن محمدا عبده ورسوله أما بعد فإن أحسن الكلام كلام الله وخير الهدى هدى محمد صلى الله عليه وسلم وإن شر الأمور محتثاتها وكل محتثة بدعة وكل بدعة ضلالة وكل ضلالة في النار So alhamdulillah you've heard a very beneficial lecture from our brother Abu Mu'adh Taqweem Hafizahullah explaining the reality of the madhab of the salaf as it relates to the names and attributes. And as he mentioned, this is a huge topic, a tremendous topic. And it is not something that we can address in an evening, perhaps even in a weekend. It requires a detailed, sustained level of study to grasp this issue, this topic, and the seriousness of this topic. So what I want to do in my lecture, inshallah ta'ala, is I want to deal with some of the historical aspects, some of the aspects of history regarding Allah's names and attributes, how and why differing occurred in this subject, how and why the people deviated from what the messengers brought and how the nation, the Muslim nation, split in this topic in the second century, at the beginning of the second century after Hijrah and how those groups which appeared, who erred and deviated then their foundations remained within the Ummah their foundations remained within the Ummah and there came people after them who inherited those foundations and they carried those foundations through every century up until this time of ours we see there are present today as you see the Ash'aris and the Maturidis and you know there is uh, conflict and controversy and differing with these groups so we want to try and understand how and why all of this arose? Where did it come from? And to give you a parable, it's useful to give a parable or an example to help to put the idea into your mind. It is a bit like this. If you imagine you are given a jigsaw puzzle, imagine you are given a jigsaw puzzle of a thousand pieces. And so someone puts them in a bag and gives it to you and so you have to take the pieces out and look at the pieces and try to figure out what is going on. Do you think it will be easy for you? Answer? Okay. Maybe you might do it after a very, very, very long time. Allah knows best. But if someone shows you the picture, if you have the picture, the entire picture of the jigsaw puzzle, then you can take individual pieces and you can say, well, this one, I know it goes in this area here. There's a bit of sky in this area. There's a blue piece. Maybe that will go here. 
and there's a bit of greenery here so I can take that piece these pieces I can I know that they fit in this place here right and then there's a bit of greenish blue that's maybe a river or, or a sea or an ocean I'll take these pieces and put them here so when you see the picture then you know where each piece generally you know where it will go and also then specifically you know where it will fit is that clear to you is that clear to you so the analogy the parable the analogy is that in this topic of Allah's names and attributes unless you know unless you have a bird's eye view looking down into history and what happened in this Muslim nation and the various groups which appeared and why they appeared and what they said and why they said unless you understand all of that and why and how the Salaf responded to them and how they responded back right unless you understand all of that then in this topic you will not really have good grounding you'll be confused and this is why as we always say and as Sheikh Salih Al-Sheikh mentions a very important point which is that in order to thoroughly understand Aqidah you have to understand history you have to understand the history of why did a particular statement appear why did the statement appear why did the people say this and then you have to understand how the Salaf responded to that and then you have to understand how so so once you understand the origins of these sayings and why people said these things then you will be able to read the books of the Salaf with greater clarity they will make more sense to you you will understand why Ibn Taymiyyah is writing all of these books why did he write a book on the Talbis of the Jahmiyyah the deception of the Jahmiyyah why did he write a book on the issue of reason and revelation do they conflict with each other or do they agree with each other why did he so why why is he writing these books or why did the salaf why did imam ahmed write for example arad al jahmiyyah why did al bukhari include in his sahih books which are a refutation of the jahmiyyah you will understand then you will start understanding all of this all of this will start to make sense so so basically my talk then I'm going to try to squeeze it all in as much as possible. I don't think I'll, I'll achieve that in this, in this evening, uh, but we'll try our best. So my talk is basically intended to provide you this picture, to, to provide you this picture of the jigsaw puzzle, so you can have a framework, then you know, well, okay, the Maturidi, I know where he fits in, he fits in here, right? The Ash'ari, I know where he fits in, he fits in here. The Jahmi, he fits here. Right, you take and then you hear their statements, what a Jahmi says. Right? If you say Allah is in a direction, it means he's in a space, which means he's a body. You know, okay, I take this and this fits in right here. Right? And its origin comes from here. Do you understand? This is what we are basically doing. So so if you know the general framework or the general picture, the details you can then fill in afterwards. The hardest part is seeing the bigger picture at the beginning. This is what the hardest part is. Once you see the big picture, then every piece of information you come across in this topic of Allah's names and attributes, especially as it relates to the people of Bid'ah, people of innovation, and what they are saying, you will know exactly where to put that particular statement of theirs and why they said it and why it is Baqil. Okay? So this is what, inshallah ta'ala, the aim and the objective is. So we'll start our lecture with the statement of Allah. Azza wa Jal, 
at the end of Surah Safat, the 37th Surah, the last three verses, and they are tremendous and mighty verses. In them, Allah he says, Subhana Rabbika Rabbil Izzati Amma Yasifun, Wa Salamun Ala Al Mursaleen, Wa Alhamdulillahi Rabbil Alameen. There is a tremendous amount of fiqh within these three verses. And Ibn Kathir, rahimahullah ta'ala, he comments upon this and he says, يُنَزِّهُ تَبَارَكَ وَتَعَالَ نَفْسَهُ وَيُقَدِّسُهَا وَيُبَرِّئُهَا عَمَّا يَقُولُ الظَّالِمُونَ الْمُكَذِّبُونَ الْمُعْتَدُونَ تَعَالَى وَتَنَزَّهَ وَتَقَدَّسَ عَنْ قَوْلِهِمْ عُلُوًا كَبِيرًا He says, so basically there are three, three ayat in this, uh, in, in this passage. First of all, Ibn Kathir says that Allah Tabarak wa Ta'ala, he, he purifies himself and he sanctifies himself and he declares himself free, free and innocent from whatever is said by the Zalimun, the oppressive people, the Mukaddibun, the liars, Al-Mu'tadun and those who are transgressors. Allah is lofty and exalted and sanctified and pure and free and innocent. From their statement with a great and mighty ulu uh, and kabira, he is lofty above that in a in a great way. وَلِهَذَا قَالَ تَبَارَكَ وَتَعَالَى سُبْحَانَ رَبِّكَ رَبِّ الْعِزَّةِ For this reason, Allah, the Blessed and the Most High, said, "Subhana Rabbik, how free and sublime is your Lord, the Lord of Might." عَمَّا يَصِفُونَ From that which they describe. So in the first verse, Allah is negating every type of description, every type of speech, everything which has been said by the people who came before, before the revelation of the Qur'an. By any of the nations, whether it is the Yahud, or the Nasara, the Jews or the Christians, or the Sabi'ah, those who are the star worshippers. Or it is the Mushrikun from the Arabs, other than the Arabs. Or whether it is the Falasifa, the philosophers of old. All the things that they said. In this ayah, everything that has been said previously, outside of the message of the prophets, it has been negated in this ayah. And Allah declares himself above and beyond and sanctified from any, of, any and all of that. Secondly, in the next verse, he says, وَسَلَامٌ عَلَى الْمُرْسَلِينَ Which means, and peace, or safety, safety, is upon the messengers. So Ibn Kathir says, أَيْ سَلَامُ اللَّهِ عَلَيْهِمْ فِي الدُّنْيَا وَالْآخِرَةِ لِسَلَامَةِ مَا قَالُوهُ فِي رَبِّهِمْ وَصِحَّتِهِ وَحَقِّيَّتِهِ So he says, meaning that there is the protection or the, the, the safety of Allah upon them in this life and hereafter due to the, the salama, meaning that what they said about their Lord, it is, it is uh, sound and secure and safe and it is authentic and it is true. So meaning that now, everything else that was said about Allah by all the other previous people, it is negated. And then he established that the prophets, 
They are the ones who are safe and secure in whatever they say about Allah in what they describe Allah with. So this now establishes that the root to knowledge, the root to the knowledge of Allah is from whom? From or from what? It is through authentic revelation. Authentic revelation. And in this case, it is only the Quran. Because now the Quran has, you know, the, the previous books are, they, they, they are invalidated, they are abrogated because of the distortion and so on and so forth. And the only root to knowledge is revelation, which is the Quran, which we can call naql. Naql, naql means transmission. Right? Or another way is as-sama'. As-sama' means that which we hear. That which we hear of revelation. So the Quran is naql, it is transmission uh, from the Messenger of Allah, from Allah Azawajal. And as-sama', another word for it, which means that which we hear, meaning of revelation. So this is the only route to acquiring knowledge of Allah Azawajal. And this is why Allah Azawajal declared the messengers to have salam, to have, to, to have salama. Then thirdly, he said, Walhamdulillahi Rabbil Alameen. And all praise is due to Allah, the Lord of the worlds. Meaning, Lahulhamd, Filula wal Akhira, Fikulli Halim. Meaning, to him belongs the praise in the beginning and in the hereafter, in every situation or in every state. And since at the and notice in this passage, Allah mentioned two things at Tasbih, Subhana Rabbik, and Alhamd. Walhamdulillahi Rabbil Alameen. These two words together, they indicate two things. First of all, Allah is free of all deficiencies. Subhana Rabbik. Subhana Rabbik. How free and innocent and remote and sanctified and sublime is your Lord? From every type of deficiency. This is Subhana Rabbik. And in the third verse, Walhamdulillahi Rabbil Alameen, Alhamd is only given, is given to attributes of perfection. So in the third verse, Allah affirms for Himself the attributes of perfection. Think about this ayah now. And the scholars actually discuss this ayah in their works along the lines that I'm, that I'm mentioning. That you see in this ayah, in this passage, sorry, there are a number of things. First of all, that Allah when we describe Him and speak of Him, it is through two methods. We negate from Him all deficiencies. We negate from Him all false speech. And secondly, we affirm for Him all of His perfect names and attributes. And how do we do that? Only by way of the messengers. And what they bring of ilm, which is knowledge, and nur, which is light, and huda, which is guidance, and tibyan, which is clarity, and so on and so forth, which are descriptions of the Qur'an and descriptions of the guidance that was brought by the prophets and, by the, prophets and the messengers. So, is this first point clear to everybody? Clear to everybody because you we need to there's a lot to take in inshallah and a lot to follow. Okay. So once this is clear now, the next thing we want to do then is we need to distinguish between two groups of people. We need to distinguish between two groups of people. So we're going to put one group of people here on the right and another group of people here on the left. Right? So the first group of people 
On this side, on the right, on my right, we will say that they are the prophets and messengers. The prophets and messengers of Allah. What do they bring? What do they bring? What do they have? What do they have? Wahi, perfect. Wahi. They have wahi from Allah. And since Allah has mentioned to us in His book, وَمَا خَلَقُتُ الْجِنَّ وَالْإِنسَ إِلَّا I have not created men and jinn except that they may worship me. And He also said, يَا أَيُّهَا النَّاسُ عُبُدُوا رَبَّكُمْ أَلَّذِي خَلَقَكُمْ وَالَّذِينَ مِنْ قَبْلِكُمْ لَعَلَّكُمْ تَتَّقُونَ O mankind, worship your Lord who created you and those who came before you in order that you may acquire piety. And every messenger said to his people, Ya qawmi Allah, ma lakum min ilahin ghayruh. O my people, worship Allah. You have no other deity besides him. So since creation is, is for the purpose of us worshipping Allah, then that worship of Allah can only be actualized upon authentic knowledge regarding Allah. And that authentic knowledge regarding Allah can only come by way of wahi, wahi. And this is because even though Allah has put within each person the fitrah, the fitrah is something by which we know that there must be a creator. There must be a creator. And the fitrah is something that compels us, it, it makes us want to worship this creator. But only, But we only have a very general knowledge of Allah by way of the fitrah. We know He exists. We know He is the Creator. And maybe we can figure out some basic attributes that you know He has knowledge, He has life and things like this. But this cannot give us, this, 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 this does not amount to a detailed knowledge about Allah. And therefore it is the prophets and the messengers in what they convey of revelation which tells us what to believe about Allah. What are the names? What are his names? What are his attributes? What are his actions? And what can we not describe him? What is he innocent of? What is he free of? What, is he, you know, what, what, what does he deny from himself? And this knowledge is only something which comes from the prophets and messengers. Is this clear? Now we will move to the next thing. The prophets and messengers, the messengers of Allah have three qualities. They have three qualities and make note of these qualities. First of all, they are A'lamun Nas. A'lamun Nas. Billahi ta'ala. First of all, they are the most knowledgeable of Allah's creation about Allah. Is this true or not? Is there anyone more knowledgeable than the Prophet and Messengers about Allah? No. Secondly, they are Afsahun Nas. Which means that they are the most eloquent of people in speech when they speak about Allah. When Allah revealed, for example, the Torah to Musa, was there anything more eloquent in speech than the Torah? Answer? No. The Quran which Allah revealed to the Messenger Muhammad. Is there anything more eloquent? Is there, any, is there anyone more eloquent than Muhammad Sallallahu Alaihi Wasallam amongst the Arabs? 
of the Arabic language and of the Quran? No. So the Prophet's messages are Afsahun Nas. They are the most eloquent of people because it is revelation from Allah. And thirdly, they are Ansahun Nas. Ansahun Nas. They are the most eager and desirous of people of wanting good to the people to whom they are conveying the knowledge. Right? They are sincere in wanting to guide the people. Is this not the case? Is there anyone more concerned and more zealous for the guidance of this Ummah than Muhammad Sallallahu Alaihi Wasallam? Is there anyone more zealous and more desirous of guidance than the Messenger of Allah No. So these then are the three qualities. These are the qualities of the Prophets and Messengers of Allah. The reason why I am mentioning all of this is because when we come later on to look at the statements of the people of misguidance, you will see that the reality of their statements, the reality of their principles, when you peel all the layers of the onion, you peel one layer, there's another one, then you peel that one, there's another one, then you peel that one, you come right to the middle and to the core, you will see that what they are really saying is that the messengers were ignorant. Ajhalun nas. And they are saying that the messengers of Allah were not the most eloquent of people. And they, was, and they are saying that they were not the most desirous of guidance for the people to whom they were sent. This is the reality of what they are saying. Once you pierce through all of the, you know, the, the, the smoke and the mist and the, you know, the layers which are on top of their statements and words, this is the reality of what they will be saying. And this will become clear as we proceed further and further. So, this now leads us to discuss another two things. We are still speaking about the prophets and messengers, right? Once all of this is clear and revelation comes to you, what is the first obligation? What is the first wajib upon any person? Hmm? Tawheed, it's, it's, yeah, correct, correct answer. First obligation is to make the shahadatah. The first wajib in Islam is to establish, to declare your faith in Allah and to express the shahadatah. The shahadata. This is the first obligation. Why? Because, first of all, you already have the fitrah. You know Allah exists. And so there is nothing for you except to say Ashhadu an la ilaha illallah wa ashhadu anna Muhammadan Rasulullah. And then to learn your religion and to acquire knowledge of the aqidah of the names attributes of iman and to learn the ahkam and the ibadat and to worship Allah. This is the first obligation, right? And secondly, how do we come to know Allah? Is it obligatory to know Allah by way of revelation? Or is it obligatory to know Allah by way of reason, by aqal? What's the answer? By what? By revelation. Right? And we'll look at the proofs for that later on, inshallah. For now, I just want to distinguish between the prophets and messengers over here, on this side, and another group on this side. Right? So, putting all of this together now, Putting all of this together now. Allah created mankind to worship him. 
He made it easy for them to worship, worship him because he put within them the fitrah. The fitrah is something by which we instinctively know that there is a creator. We don't need to think about it. We don't need to reason. We just know and we feel that there is a creator. Allah put this from his mercy. He put this in mankind. Then he sent prophets and messengers with knowledge about himself in a detailed manner. His names, his attributes, his actions by way of messengers who are a'lamun nas wa afsahun nas wa ansahun nas. The most knowledgeable and the most eloquent and the most sincere in wanting guidance for the people to whom they were sent. And on account of, on account of all of this, we know that the first obligation is to declare your belief in Allah and to worship Him alone. And it is obligatory to know Allah by way of revelation, not by reason. Is all of this clear to you now? Right? So therefore a Muslim, he turns to the prophets and messengers, he turns to the revealed books, and he learns what Allah has mentioned about himself, about his names, his attributes, and what Allah has denied from himself of deficiencies and shortcomings that, for example, he has a son, or that he becomes tired, or that he's unaware, and all of these things which are, which are deficiencies. So he negates them, and he affirms perfections for himself. And from that we acquire knowledge of Allah, as he intended, as he wanted, and we worship him. Why? Because this knowledge it creates these feelings in our hearts. It creates love, hope, fear, reliance, remorse, and so on and so forth. And so this ilm, is something that leads us and helps us to worship Allah upon Tawheed. Right, so now we have finished de discussing the prophets and the messengers and what they bring. It is wahi. Wahi, or it is naql. We say naql. Naql means that which has been transmitted. On this side, we have another group of people and we will call them the philosophers. Right, the philosophers. And specifically, I mean the Greek philosophers, right? These are people like Plato and Aristotle. You've probably heard of these people, and they are taught in the schools and so on and so forth. And this is crucial to understand because we want to contrast between the prophets and messengers on the one hand and how they guide the people, and these people over here who are the philosophers, right? How do the philosophers, how do they speak about the world and about the things that they cannot see. They use what? They use what? Aql. They use reason. Right? So what these, what these philosophers, what they did, is they said that we want to have a rational understanding of the creator or the originator. Right? How can we rationally understand what this, who is this being or this thing that we know is governing the universe, right? And how can we acquire knowledge of him? Remember, these people are misguided people. There is no book sent to them. They are star worshippers. They are polytheists. They are idolaters. And they just use their aql to try to understand the world and to try to understand things that they cannot see, right? And so they basically said, aql is the foundation of all knowledge. Is this true? Is this true? Is Aql the foundation of knowledge about Allah? No, it's not. We've already established 
that it is wajib to know Allah by way of naql, wahi. Yes, we already established that. These people, the general principle they have is that it is wajib, not wajib, it is basically the only sound basis of knowledge, the only way we can get sound knowledge is by using this. Right? And this is something which is said by all of the philosophers and disbelievers and atheists in all times and ages. This is, they say the same thing. Like today, you have scientists and they say, yes, the scientific method and reason is the only route to knowledge. Is this correct? Batil. False. It's not correct. But this is the basic principle. This is the basic principle that they said. And so what they began to do is they began to, they began to speak about this being that they thought was behind the universe, right? And they started writing books called physics and metaphysics. Metaphysics, physics is things that we can see and metaphysics is things that, you know, we can't see and what is their nature and so on and so forth. So to cut a long story short, I'm going to summarize it. I'm going to mention to you how they described this being that they thought was behind the universe. I'm going to give you the summary of what they said. And pay attention to these words. So they said, and all of this is known and established. It's, you know, it's, it's not subject to dispute. It's not something that I'm making up. It's, it's rigorous, rigorously studied. Their books are there. They are translated. There's academic papers on this. This is all known and understood. And really, the Ash'aris and Maturidis, the ones at the very top of the pyramid, they know exactly what is being said here. They know and understand what is being said here, and they know this full well. Right? But the ones who are underneath, in the middle layer of the pyramid, and the, the blind followers at the bottom, they are basically clueless about all of this. They don't know any of this. Right? But the ones right at the top, they know, when they hear this speech, they will know that we know what they are upon, and what they are about. Right? So, listen to the speech of Aristotle and Plato, how they are describing... The divine, meaning that being that they believe is behind the universe. They say, he is without a body. Without a body. Doesn't have a body. He doesn't, without limit, doesn't have any limits. He is without change. He cannot change. He does not have mutability. He's immutable. What does this mean? That he can't change. He's fixed. He is without parts. He's not divisible. He doesn't have any parts. He is not subject to time. He's not confined by time, confined by space. Can you start to understand this language now? Do you understand this language? Because this language is what you will see in the books of the Ash'aris and Maturidis. This is where it's coming from, right? It's coming from that source. So we'll make the link later on, inshallah ta'ala. So they're saying this, this, this being is without a body, he's without parts, and he's without passions. By passions they mean things like loving and being pleased and being angry and things like this. So basically, these Greek philosophers, this is how, this is their language in terms of how they described the being that they thought was behind the universe, Right? Right? He's not confined by space, not confined by time, he's not a body, he's not divisible, he's not this, he doesn't have any attributes, he, you know, we can't think of an attribute in our mind for him. 
Do you understand? All of this, basically, if you think about it, they are, they are rejecting any description for Allah. And they are saying that really it's just something that you think of in your mind that he is one. Right? Without any names, without any attributes, you know. And so this is the type of language that these people, that these people basically, basically spoke of. Now this is in the 4th century before Isa a.s. Right? Four centuries before Isa a.s. Aristotle, Plato were in that basic period of time. So then what happened is that this idea or this speech and this language of Plato and Aristotle, the Jews and the Christians and the Sabi'a, they acquired this language and they acquired these ideas and they began to speak about Allah in exactly the same way. In exactly the same way. So meaning that this, 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 this type of knowledge, this type of language is something that the previous nations fell into before the people of Islam fell into it. Right? So meaning that the people like the Ash'aris and Maturidis and the Jahmiya and the Mu'tazila, they are not something new among the nations. They are not something new among the nations. This is something which already happened to the Jews. It happened to the Christians and it happened to the Sabi'a. And these things that we are speaking of about Ta'wil and Tafweed and so on and so forth, which are, the, which are these mechanisms, this is not something new. This already existed amongst the Jews and amongst the Christians many, many hundreds of years before Islam even came. And therefore, if you go and you research in the academic papers and in history books and so on and so forth, again, all of this is well known and, and, and established and clear I will give you some names for example there was a Jewish rabbi by the name of Philo Judeus of Alexandria in Egypt Alexandria he died in the year 50 after in the Christian era meaning that he was alive in the time of Isa salam. and this man in his books when you read his books you will find the same things in the same type of language that you will find today in the books of the Ash'aris and the Maturidis. Right? Allah is not a jism. Allah is not a body. Allah is not an Arab. Allah is not a, a, an accident or an incidental attribute. Allah is not in place. Allah is not in a location. Allah is not this. Allah is not that. This is what we call negative theology. You only describe Allah in negatives. You only say what he isn't rather than saying what he is. Because if you say what he is, You've likened him to the creation. Do you understand the basic idea now? Right? So this is something that was already present amongst those Greeks, uh, Plotinus and uh, you know, others like that. And so this Philo, he's speaking with the same language. Six, uh, seven, 800 years, 700 years be before Jahan bin Safwan, the Jahmiya, the Mu'tazila, the Kullabiya, the Ash'ariya, the Maturidiya. Right? Then after him, you have amongst the Christians, they become affected by the same thing. There is Clement of Alexandria in the 3rd century after Isa speaking exactly the same language. God is without parts, without a body, without, uh, you know, um, uh, is not divisible, is not, is not mutable, and so on and so forth. The same type of language. Not a jism, not, not an Arab, 
is not subject to hawadith, all of this philosophical babble, philosophical nonsense that they took from the, the Greek philosophers. Right? So if you read his works, then you go and read, for example, the books of these Asheris and Maturidis, it's exactly the same language. Then you have after him, a person called Saint Augustine, Augustine of Hippo, I believe, the place where he's from. Exactly the same thing. He's basically in the 5th century. This is only now three centuries before Islam. Exactly the same type of language. Right? And this is because they were affected by those Greek philosophers who said we use reason to decide what the creator is and what he isn't. And then on the basis, and they are obviously just misguided polytheists and idol worshippers who are speaking about ignorance, then the Jews took that and the Christians took that and the Sabi'ah, they took that as well. The Sabi'ah are basically people to whom Ibrahim al-Islam was sent, but they remained in those lands for centuries and centuries and centuries, and they were still present when Islam came. And they were present in the Muslim lands. So, now the point is, can you see the difference between what's over here? What's over here? It is Wahi. Yes? Wahi through the Prophet and Messengers. What's over here? Huh? What is it built upon? Jahl. Jahl. The whisperings of the shayateen. Right? Speculation. Right? And all of this nonsense. Right? That was taken then by the nations. By the Yahud. By the Nasara. By the Sabi'ah. And this now was present amongst the people when Islam came. Is that clear to you? That these ideas were present. It's not something new. It was already there. And one of the famous Christian theologians was a man by the name of John of Damascus. He was, in present, he was present in the time of Islam. Right? John of Damascus. In, in Damascus. In, uh, you know, after, after 100 Hijrah. And this man had exactly the same speech. What you hear from the Jahmi and the Mu'tazila and the Ashris and the Maturidis. With respect to Allah's names and attributes, the same type of language, exactly the same. So the point being now, here we have the revelation, which the Messenger Salah must come with. And then we have those misguided polytheists, idol worshippers and star worshippers, and what they came out with of that language. Then you have these nations who are affected by it, and they are now present. They are now present amongst the Muslims. Did you know? That that Yahudi who poisoned the messenger of Allah Sallallahu Alaihi Wasallam, what's his name? What's his name? Labid in Al Asam Al Yahudi, the one who poisoned the messenger of Allah Sallallahu Alaihi Wasallam. You know he was, you know he was a learned, learned scholar, and you know he's, you know what he said? He said the he said the Torah is created. The Torah is created. He said this. Before the Mu'tazila came and said the Qur'an is created. Why did he say this? He said it on the basis of that same Greek philosophical baggage and babble that the Jahmiyyah and the Mu'tazila acquired. And which then the Ash'aris and Maturidis then took after, you know, after that, they came and they took the same thing. Right? So now, now maybe you've got a clearer picture now. You've got a clearer idea of what's going on. Right? The Messenger of Allah has come with revelation. From Allah Zawajal. And in the Quran there is Ithbat and Nafi. Ithbat is whatever Allah affirms for himself of names. Ar-Rahman, Ar-Rahim, Al-Malik, Al-Quddus and so on and so forth. 
under attributes, his knowledge, his will, his power, his qudra, his face, his mercy, and so on and so forth. And then he negates from him, likewise his actions of creating and ascending above the throne, and so on and so forth. And likewise he you know, uh, negates from himself all imperfections. This is the knowledge that we take from Allah about himself. Then there's this other stuff floating around which is all built upon jahl and hawa and the whisperings of the shayateen. And there are people surrounding the Muslim nation who are basically speaking with this type of language. And that's why we said to you the verse that we mentioned at the very beginning, Subhana Rabbik, Rabbil Izzati Amma Yasifoon, Wa Salamun Ala Mursaleen, Walhamdulillahi Rabbil Alameen. You have to keep those ayat in mind as we move through this history because their relevance will, you know, will become clear to you the relevance of these verses. So, now that this is clear, we now want to move on. Uh, in fact, before we move to the next stage, I want to read a statement here from Shaykh Al-Islam Ibn Taymiyyah, and this is the beginning of the second volume of Kitab An-Nubuwat. It's a great, fantastic book. And at the beginning of this book, he says, he's speaking now about the usul of the religion. How do we take the usul of our religion? He says, قَدْ ذَكَرْنَا فِي غَيْرِ مَوْدِعٍ أَنَّ أُسُولَ الدِّينَ الَّذِي بَعَثَ اللَّهُ بِهِ رَسُولَهُ مُحَمَّدًا سَلَسَلَّمْ قَدْ بَيَّنَهَا فِي الْقُرْآنِ أَحْسَنَ بَيَّانٍ وبين دلائل الربوبية والوحدانية ودلائل أسماء الرب وأسماء أسماء الرب وصفاته وبين دلائل نبوة أنبيائه وبين المعاد بين إمكانه وقد وقدرته عليه في غير موضع translate إن شاء الله because it's a lengthy passage I'll get the gist of the meaning to you he's saying basically that the foundations of our religion the usul of our religion which Allah sent the messenger with the Qur'an has explained them in the most excellent of manner. And the Qur'an has explained all of the evidences for his rububiyyah, for his wahdaniyah, for his names and attributes, and for all the other things about the, the correctness of, his, of, of uh, the truthfulness of his prophets, and about resurrection in the best of ways, with evidences, clear rational evidences, and therefore Allah has made clear all of the usul of the religion, which is the deen of Allah. And he has therefore conveyed beneficial knowledge and righteous action. This is what we believe. Is this not true? Do you believe that Allah has given us perfect guidance? Do you believe or not? Do you believe the Quran and the Sunnah has, have given us everything that we need to worship Allah? And to have sound knowledge of him and to worship him alone? And also in terms of how do we argue for the foundations of our religion? Do you think, do you believe Allah has provided all that? Yes, yes. This is, this is most certainly and definitely the case. So, so far what have we established? I want someone to tell me from the audience what are the things that we've established so far before we now move to the next stage. Anybody want to offer? Fadl. Yeah. 
yeah. from him subhanahu wa ta'ala yeah. and you have other the other people on the other side the philosopher yeah. who claiming they are using the aqid yeah. who are clearly going against the prophet and messengers yeah. and you established Allah, alaykum, that this uh, uh existed way before islam and it has been taken from the plato and uh, yeah. aristotle uh, uh, also you mentioned about the red asim that he's the first person who not first person but he was yeah. The one who poisoned the message of Islam. Yeah. He was spreading that uh, uh, Torah was created. Yeah. And he took it from there. Yeah. Yeah. Okay, so you, so you basically have a general picture now that there is revelation from Allah which is brought by the messengers and our knowledge about Allah is by way of wahi. It is not by way of reason. Right? And we said, on the other hand, there are the misguided, straying, wandering, blind, People like the philosopher who were there before centuries before Islam, and they were just using the aql to try to, you know, think what they what you know think about how the, the the being that they believe is behind the creation, what he is like, and they came up with this type this language right, uh, and this described him in this way that he's not in a place, he's not in a direction, he's not in a location, he's not it doesn't he's not divisible, he's not in parts, uh, and and this type of philosophical language is the same language that you see in the books of the Ash'aris and the Maturi. This, this is basically where it's coming from, right? So, so, there are only two ways. Now we're going to move to the second part of our lecture now. There are only two ways. Either you are a follower, in fact, there are only two positions. Either you are a follower of the prophets and messengers, either you are following them, 100%, and if you are not, then you are on this camp. You're on this side. There is no other way. So either you are here following the prophets and messengers and following the methodology that they brought, and you are speaking about Allah on the basis of that, if you're not there 100%, you will be in that direction over there. Is that clear to you? There are only two positions, either here or over there. There's no other third position. All right? This now brings us now to discuss the early history of Islam and how this idea now entered into the Muslim nation. Right? And what we will establish is that there is a group of people who are known as Ahlul Kalam. You heard this word. I'm sure everybody's heard this Kalam. The people of Kalam. Ilmul Kalam. Al-Mutakallimun. You probably heard all of this. Right? And this, we'll call this a family a number of groups of people, the Ahlul Kalam, the Ilmul Kalam. Can someone tell me, just give me one group each, I want to get all the names of the groups of these people who enter into the people of Kalam. Okay, we have Mu'tazila, one group. Jahmiya, another group. Ash'aris, Ash'aira. Kullabiya. Who else? Maturidiya. Any any of this? Salimiya. Another one? One more? Huh? No. Karramiya. We have the Karramiya, right? All some you might have heard some of these names. You probably heard of uh, Ash'aris, Maturidis, obviously. Some of them you might not have heard of. What about the Hishamiya? Hishamiya? Hishamiya Rafi, the Shia. In the second century, they were affected by this as well. Huh? Mm, not, not quiet, not quiet. Maybe there's some overlap, but not quiet. 
So basically we have these six or seven uh, names. Jahmiyyah, Mu'tazila in order. Jahmiyyah, Mu'tazila in the second century. Kullabiyyah, Karramiyyah in the third century. Ash'ariyyah, Maturidiyyah, Salimiyyah in the fourth, fourth century. Right? All of them, we refer to them as what? Ilmul Kalam. Ahlul, Ahlul Kalam. What is this Ilmul Kalam? It is from where? The language of these people. That's what it is. The language of these people used to describe Allah and to speak about Allah. This is what the people of Kalam are. They've taken this as the foundation. They've said, right, we're going to take the language of these people and we're going to try to argue in favor of Islam. Do you understand what they were trying to do? Do you understand what they were trying to do? They're saying basically that we're going to take the science and the language and the philosophy of these people, we're going to take these tools, then we're going to try to argue using these tools to prove that Allah exists and to prove the prophethood of the prophets and to prove resurrection. Can you now see the danger in this? Can you see the danger? Can you see the danger in this? You're going to take the tools, the language, the conceptual baggage of these people, accepting that it's, it's, it has sound foundations, then you're going to take it, then you're going to try to prove Islam by way of it. This is the basic idea between the people of Kalam. This is what the basic idea was. This is what they were trying to do. Jahan bin Safwan, the Mu'tazila, the Kullabiyya, the Ash'ariya, the Maturidiya. This is basically what they were trying to do. Right? And because of this great mistake that they made, tremendous mistake that they made, this is what then led them and forced them to start denying the names and attributes of Allah Azza wa Jal. Right? Because there was a clash, there was a conflict, right? What they were doing was they were trying to use this language to prove that Allah exists. But the argument they were using, it was contradicted by the Qur'an, because in the Qur'an, Allah says He has attributes, Allah says He has actions, and this was contradicting the argument they were using. So they had to make a choice. They had to make a choice. Which one do we give precedence? Do we put reason higher and make the Qur'an subservient to it? Or do we put the Qur'an higher and basically say, well, this method is basically false, we're going to leave it. Do you understand? Right? This was the question, this was the choice that they had to make when they started using this philosophy and this language. Right? Because it clashed with the Qur'an. So what did they decide? They said, they said actually, basically, we're going to accept this language and terminology to be the truth because we are proving Allah's existence by way of it. And as for the Qur'an, well, what we're going to do is we're going to look, look at the Qur'an and we're going to basically explain away the verses. So any verses which contradict, we're going to basically make ta'wil of them. And we're going to, this is where the origin of ta'wil comes from. This is why they wanted to make ta'wil of the verses of the Qur'an. Because it con conflicted with the argument they were using, the argument they developed, which they took from the language of the philosophers. Right? This is why today you see the Jahmi or the Mu'tazili is, you know, making ta'wil of the book of, the, or book of Allah. Oh, yes, it is. No, no, it doesn't mean that I mean something else. Why, why is he doing this? What's making him do this? There's a reason. Obviously, there's a reason behind it. What's the reason? It's because this baggage he's picked up 
right? He's using this baggage to make a, a, a rational proof to show Allah exists. But in order for this proof to be correct, it means that what is in the Quran, that Allah has attributes, Allah has actions, it can't really be reconciled with this. So we have to do one of two things. Either say the argument is wrong, or say that the Quran, the Muslim Sunnah of the Quran, we have to basically, these verses, they, you know, it is tajseem and tashbih, and it makes Allah like to be like a body. So we have to now deal with these verses. How do we deal with these verses? This is where ta'wil comes from. And later on, this is where tafweed comes from, later after that as well. Right? They had loads of different mechanisms to try and play with the Quran, play with the Sunnah. Right? This is basically what's going on. So what we're going to do now is try to, in, as, in, a, in a quick as manner as possible, explain the origin of these groups. Right? So first of all, let's start with Jahan bin Safwan. This is now after the, in the second century after uh, after Hijrah. In the first century, we know that there were some major groups which appeared. The Khawarij, the Rafida, the Qadariya, and the Murji'ah. Right? These are the four groups which appeared in the first century of Islam. The first four deviated groups. Right? So we passed that point. We're now coming into the second century. At the beginning of the second century. In this part, in this time period, there are individuals who are basically mixing with the Yahud, with the Nasara, with the Sabi'a, traveling to these places. This is Al-Ja'ad bin Dirham, Al-Ja'ad bin Dirham, and Al-Jahan bin Safwan, who was a student of Al-Ja'ad bin Dirham. They are going, they are arguing, they are debating, right? And this method of arguing and debating about the religion, this, this is not from our deen. Our deen is submission to the texts. Whatever Allah said, whatever His Messenger said, what the Sahaba were agreed upon, ijma'ah. We submit to that. This is how we acquire our religion. Our religion is not by debating, arguing, disputation, controversy, right? This is not from our way. So these people, these individuals, were people who were basically engrossed in this argumentation, debating, and so on and so forth. And they were going to debate with the Yahud, with the Nasara, with the Sabi'ah. They would travel to different places like Haran and Damascus and so on and so forth. Right? And they would debate. And as a result of this debating, they picked up this baggage. Al-Ja'ad bin Dirham, he picked up this baggage. This baggage about speaking about Allah, you know, in, with this language. Allah is not in a place, not in a location, not in a direction, not, you know, he can't be seen, he can't be perceived, he, uh, not divisible, not changeable, not mutable, all, all this nonsense fills up the baggage. Right? He picked this up from the people around him. Then he passed this on to Jahan bin Safwan. And Jahan bin Safwan, when he acquired this, this is when, the, 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 in the time of the Salaf, time of Ayuba Sakhtiyani, and the early, you know, the Imams of the Salaf, they were present in this time. And then Jahan bin Safwan and his followers, they started developing a group of followers. And these followers, they had interactions with the people of the Sunnah. And there are many, many statements, maybe 10 or so statements from Ayub al-Sakhtiyani and many others from the Salaf around this time. And when they were having discussions with these Jahmiyyah, they realized that there's something these people are trying to say, but they're not really saying it. Right? And so that's why we have statements from, from Ayub al-Sakhtiyani and others. They're saying that the Jahmiyyah are revolving around the statement 
that there is no Lord above the heaven. Right? The Salaf already became aware and wise to what is going on. That these people have picked up something, some language, some baggage, something, and they are saying things, and it seems from what we're hearing from them, that what they're really trying to say is that there is no Lord above the heaven. But they weren't really saying it, because that would be clear, manifest kufr, if they were to say it openly to the Salaf, but they didn't say it. At that time, they couldn't say it, right? And the reason why they were saying this, it comes back to that baggage. They're saying, well, if Allah is above, then above means a direction, and a direction means space, and if something is in a space, it means it's, it's occupying a place. And if it's a place, it means, if it's occupying a place, it means it must be a body. See all this poisonous nonsense that they're coming up with, right? It must be in a body. And to say Allah is a body is tajseen. It is kufr. Right? Because you've likened him now to all the bodies. Where have they taken this from? Where is this from? Is this from any revealed book? Did any messenger speak with this? Did any sahabi speak with this? Did Imam Malik speak with this? Did Abu Hanifa speak with this? Who spoke with this? No one. No one from the people of ilm, people of knowledge, people of guidance. And so, so this is what they were trying to say in that time period because they were poisoned with this basic language. So the Jahmiya now began to appear as a group and they began to start saying these things. And these things are from the major symbols of our belief. Where is Allah? Allah is above His creation, above His throne. He stated it clearly in the, in, in, in the Quran and in the texts. How can you... So at this stage, they were not openly denying this stuff. Right? They were just speaking in a manner where you think... You, 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 you know, uh, it's not clear what they are saying, but that's what, they're basically, what they are basically implying. Now, another thing that they began to deny as well, is that Allah will not be seen in the hereafter. We won't see Allah in the hereafter. Why is this? Why did they say this? They said it because, well, to look at something, to see something, you have to look towards it. And if you're looking towards something, you're looking in a direction. And we're back to the same nonsense. And if you're looking in a direction, you know, there must be something in that space. And that space must be occupied. Not occupied. All of this is what's in the writings of that idolater, mushrik, star worshipper, Aristotle. That's where all of this is from, Right? place, direction, location, all this gibberish and nonsense. But this is what they were coming out with. So they basically said, hang on, believers seeing Allah in the hereafter, uh, they don't think so, because this would mean Allah is a body, and this is kufr. So we can't accept these narrations. Do you understand? That's what they're basically saying. And likewise, they began to say as well, hold on, if Allah speaks with speech, then it means he's changed. Something's changed in his essence. How can he have speech? Because if he speaks with something, then it means he's, something has changed with him. Because he's speaking something that he never said before. Right? So now, remember, it goes back to what Aristotle was saying about the, 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 the first cause or the first being is unchangeable, immutable, is not subject to change or events. This is where they're getting this from as well. So they said, oh, Allah, Allah doesn't have any attributes like speech. Because if he had these attributes, it would mean that he is created and he's subject to change. Right? So Allah can't speak. Therefore, how do we explain this Quran? What is this Quran then? If Allah doesn't speak and can't speak and doesn't have that speech, 
How do you explain what this Quran is? This Quran must be something created. Do you understand? Do you understand how they've come to this conclusion? Right? Because to them, Allah can't have attributes because he'd be like the creation. Allah can't speak when, as and when he wills because this now would make him subject to change and events. So therefore, Allah can't speak and therefore this Quran must be something that is just created. It's a created thing. Right? So they began to also speak with the creation of the Quran. And this is where the Mu'tazila took this from. Right? At the end of the second century uh, of, of, uh, of Islam. So from this, can you start seeing now the various statements of the Jahmiyyah and where they came from? Is that clear to you where it's coming from? What the origin of this is? Yeah. The statements uh, that they began to make. And I'm going to read to you a, a number of statements from some of the Salaf uh, regarding uh, what I said before. This is a statement from Hamad bin Zayd. Hamad bin Zayd Qala Suleiman bin Harb Samitu Hamad bin Zayd Yaqul and Hamad bin Zayd is from the Imams of the Salaf. He died in the year 179 Hijrah. He said Innama yadurun ala an yaqulu laysa fi samai ilah they are revolving around the issue. They are wanting to say that there is no Lord above the heaven. There is no deity above the heaven. Ayuba Sakhtiyani died 131 after Hijrah. He said, as is narrated from Hamad bin Zayd, Sami'tu Ayuba Sakhtiyani wa dhakar al-Mu'tazila wa qala إِنَّمَا مَدَارُ الْقَوْمِ عَلَىٰ أَنْ يَقُولُوا لَيْسَ فِي السَّمَاءِ شَيْءٍ He said, I heard Ayyub Asakhtiyani say, and he mentioned the Mu'tazila. And he said, the Mu'tazila were mentioned, and he said, Ayyub Asakhtiyani, Indeed, these people are revolving around the issue of wanting to say that there is no deity, there is nothing above the heaven. There is nothing above above the heaven. And likewise, you have the statement, similarly, of, uh, there's loads of statements, Asim bin, Asim bin Ali, the Sheikh of Imam al-Bukhari, Jarir al-Dabbi, uh, he said, قال يحيى بن المغيرة سمعت جرير بن عبد الحميد يقول كلام الجحمية أوله عسل وآخره so he said, this Imam from the Salaf, he, he was died at the 188 Hijrah, and he's from the Muhaddithin of the location Arrai. So he said, the statement of the Jahmiyyah at the beginning, it is honey. At the beginning, it is like honey. And at the end of it, it is poison. Indeed, they are trying to say that there is no deity above the heaven. Right? So our Salaf knew and understood this. Right? When he says the speech of the Jahmiyyah, its beginning is like honey. And this is why when you hear the speech of the Ash'aris and Maturidis, right? When you listen to it, it sounds like honey. It sounds like honey. 
you know, we are declaring Allah free of imperfections. He's not like the bodies. He's not confined. He's not limited. He's not this, he's not that, whatever. All sounds like honey, right? This is similar to the, the khawarij when they speak about politics, right? They speak with emotion, rhetoric, fiery zeal, and they convince you about the, you know, that they're trying to argue for justice and so on, and they draw you into their web, right? Very emotional, right? Likewise here with the Jahmiyyah and the Mu'tazila and the Ma, the way they claim that we're trying to declare free Allah of imperfections and we are doing and then they come up with all this stuff. Sounds like honey. But what's, what, what's at the end of it? It is poison. Because what it really means when you peel all the layers is that they are saying there is no deity above the heaven and Allah will not be seen in the hereafter. And Allah does not, and this Quran, this Arabic Quran that we hear and we recite and we memorize, this is not the speech of Allah, it's something created. Right? These are the things which are necessitated by, by their theology, by, what, by, by, the, by the foundations they are using to speak about Allah. So the Salaf already knew and they understood this in the second century after Hijrah. They knew exactly what these people were intending uh, to say and what they uh, intending to say. So, these were the basic ideas that the Jahmiyyah came up with. There is no Lord above the heaven. Allah does not have speech, therefore the Quran is created. Allah will not be seen in the hereafter with the vision of the eyes, because why? Because otherwise it would mean he's a body, occupying space and all this nonsense, Right? So this is now what they put into motion. All right. Remember we said, either you are here with the prophets and messengers, or you are over there. Do you understand? Right? Because they use the baggage of the philosophers, look at the conclusions. What are the conclusions they're coming to? They're identical to the philosophers, aren't they? Yeah? Because you're using the baggage. Then you're going to be led to the same conclusions as them. Right? That Allah is just really something in the mind that you can think of. Right? He's got no attributes. And you know, his so you start undermining the actual existence of Allah. Why? Because you undermine, you're saying he has no names, has no attributes, has no actions, and anything which has no attributes, it doesn't have any existence. Right? There's no thing, nothing can exist unless it has at least one attribute. Yes, as Ibn Taymiyyah mentions, right? That nothing can exist unless it has an attribute. You can't think of anything in your mind which doesn't have an attribute, right? And so that's why this really, the deen of the Jahmiyyah is something that leads towards atheism. It leads you towards believing in nothingness, right? Because something without names, attributes, is something that really doesn't exist. That's what the Jahmiyyah, this is where, you know, the direction that they were going in because of the baggage that they took from whom? From the philosophers, right? Is that clear? So now we have the Jahmiyyah have now appeared in the Ummah, in the Muslim nation. And this statement in, the, in Al-Asma'i Wasifat was taken from them by the Mu'tazila. So Amr bin Ubaid and you know, those people who are with him, they then acquired this doctrine from the Jahmiyyah. And the difference between the Jahmiyyah and the Mu'tazila is that the Jahmiyyah were just really, they didn't write any books they didn't establish a school of doctrine. They didn't have circles like this. They were just people walking around saying the speech. And the Salaf abused them and reviled them and attacked them and refuted them, right? The Mu'tazila 
Now they took the basic ideas, they began to write this down now. They began to elaborate upon this whole thing. And they began to uh, refine the proofs and the evidences and write about these things about, you know, uh, ajsam and arad and, you know, bodies, accidents and things like that. And, and write down books. And they developed this and took it to another level. Right? So what these Mu'tazila did is they thought, right, okay, how are we going to, how can we fight against these, the salaf? How can we fight them? How can we establish, how can we establish our belief? So they began, began to invent principles by which they could promote these ideas. From those principles they invented was, they said, well, we distinguish between mutawatir and ahad. We only accept the mutawatir. And ahad, this is just speculative, it's not really knowledge. Why were they saying this? Because they detested the fact that the Salaf were narrating the Ahadith to do with what? To do with An-Nuzul, Allah's Nuzul, Allah's descent to the lowest heaven, and the various uh, the Hadith to do with the Sifat, the attributes of Allah. They detested this. So they thought, how can we fight against this now? Right? Obviously, they are Juhal when it comes to Ilmul Hadith, to, to, to the Athar. So they began to invent principles. Mutawatir ahad, right? Anything which is mutawatir will accept it, ahad or will reject it because it's only speculative. Right? This is one false principle they brought into the ummah. Right? And the scholars refuted this Imam Ahmed and other than them. Another principle they brought is that they brought this idea of haqiqah and majaz. Right? There is what is the reality in language and there is the metaphorical language, which is just like metaphorical, it's not really meant or intended. This has never been spoken by any Sahabi, by any Tabi'i, by any of the Imams, nor by any of the Imams in the, of the Madahib in Fiqh, nor by any of the Imams in the Arabic language. Not Al-Khalil, not uh, Sibawi, none of them. This, this thing is unheard of from, from the likes of them. This was invented by the Mu'tazila, and then it was taken by the Ashiris and Maturidis, as a means of attacking those verses and those ahadith which didn't agree with their foundations, the foundations that they were upon, which they took from the, the philosophers. So they could say, ah, yes, this verse, actually, it's metaphorical. Al-Istiwa' metaphorical. Hand uh, metaphorical. Hand means qudra or ni'mah. Do you understand? This is another device now that they, that they, that they brought in order to fight against this. Likewise, they invented ta'wil as a mechanism to attack those texts which they didn't like, which clashed with their theology. So this is why in this time period, at the end of the second century, the Mu'tazila, they basically they grew strong. And some of them, they began to take all the verses of the Qur'an to do the attributes and inventing ta'wils for them. And one of the men who did this, his name is Bishr al-Marisi al-Hanafi, Al-Jahmi. This man was a Hanafi, he was a Jahmi, and he's known as Bishr al-Marisi. And he's the one who compiled, brought together all these ta'wils of the book, uh, in, in the book of Allah, and these are the ta'wils that the Ash'aris and Maturidis are basically are relying upon. Right? The later ones who came afterwards. All of them come back to this man, Bishr al-Marisi, al-Hanafi al-Jahmi. And the Imams of the Salaf, they, they wrote... Uh, uh, wrote a book like Imam al-Darmi wrote a book Naqd 
Uthman bin Sa'id ala Bishr al-Marisi al-Jahmi al-Anid. Fantastic title and an excellent book. And so uh, in this time period then we have the ta'wils now. So what do we see now? In the time of the Jahmi it was just speech. Now in the time of the Mu'tazila, now it starts becoming like a proper school of doctrine. Right? Principles are being outlined. Mutawatir, ahad, majaz, haqiqah. Ta'wils are being invented now to start addressing those texts of the Qur'an which they believe is tajzeeb and tashbih and kufr. Because this is really what they are saying. They are saying that Allah revealed to the Messenger of Allah and what He conveyed to the people is, is something which if we leave it as it is, it's, it's tajzeeb and kufr and tashbih. So we have to now, we have to you know, make ta'wil of these verses so that the people are misguided. Can you see the evil they've come to now? It's as if the Qur'an now is something that will misguide people and direct them to kufr and tajseem and tashbih. This is the twisted minds that these people developed. Why? Because they took the baggage from over here. And they didn't suffice with what the prophets and messengers came with. Right? That's why they fell into this tremendous mistake. So now this school is developing and it's becoming an actual school of doctrine. Something that books are written for. Something for which schools are established. So these people, they basically, they gained strength. Then also the books of the Greeks were translated in this time period. right? And then from those books of the Greeks, they gained more um, intellectual power. right? And they would develop their doctrine even further. And this now, we're coming now to the beginning of the second century. And where this great mihna, the great trial took place. When the leaders, the caliphs of the time because they'd become influenced and convinced by the Mu'tazila, they basically said that anyone who says the Qur'an is the speech of Allah is a kafir and a mushrik. Why? Because if he says Allah has speech, he's made Allah to be like a body. So he's a mushrik. And so they put all of the scholars of Islam, the scholars of the Sunnah to trial. They brought them in chains from the various parts of the Muslim nation and put them to trial. They said, what do you say about the Qur'an? And anyone who said it is the speech of Allah uncreated, they chopped off his neck. And so many scholars were slaughtered like this. Many scholars, actually out of fear, they actually, uh, you know, to save their lives, they actually said, yes, the Quran is created. Although they didn't believe it. So they expressed something which is disbelief, but they didn't, the hearts were, didn't believe it to save their lives, right? And so this, this is a tremendous trial that took place in that period of Islam, uh, because of this deen of the Jahmiyyah. And then, as we know, Imam Ahmed, ta'ala, he's the one who, for a good seven, eight, nine, ten year period, he was brought in chains, imprisoned, beaten, arguing, debating. Then all these people, the heads of the Jahmiyyah, they came from all different places, and they would argue against him in front of the, the Caliph, and he would refute them and demolish them and annihilate them and so on and so forth. And eventually, after many, many years, Allah Jal, he aided the Sunnah, and he gave victory to the people of the Sunnah because the, the, the Imam Ahmed, the, the Caliph, eventually saw that he is upon the truth. He convinced the Caliph and then after that time, you know, eventually the fitna of the Mu'tazila was subdued and it was finished. Right? So at this point, don't listen to the nonsense of the Ash'aris and Maturidis. Yes, we refuted the Mu'tazila. Ya Ikhwan, this is Kadib. Right? The Mu'tazila were demolished and annihilated by Imam Ahmad. And after that time, 
the, the Ummah as a whole began to despise the Mu'tazila. They began to hate the Mu'tazila. The Mu'tazila were in decline because of Imam Ahmed. This is, you know, uh, 60 years, 70, 80 years before even Al-Ashri became, Al became known and began to, you know, before he left the Mu'tazila. Right? So this is propaganda from the Ash'aris that we just argued against the Mu'tazila. No, he didn't. Imam Ahmed destroyed the Mu'tazila. Whilst he was in chains, and Allah gave victory to Imam Ahmed and the people of the Sunnah by way of Imam Ahmed. So now, now the matter would have been finished at this point. Are you okay to continue? Sorry, I've, I've lost track of time. It's 10 o'clock. Are you okay to continue or what? Yes or no? Okay, okay. Have one. I got carried away in the flow of the things. So, so now the matter would have been finished, right? Victory to the people of the Sunnah. Right? Victory to those who aided the prophets and messengers, who is Imam Ahmed. The matter would have been dead and finished. But then what happened? Something else. Allah's Qadaw al Qadr. What happened now is now another group of people who come along and they basically also people who are into argumentation. So they now decide we're going to argue with the Mu'tazila. We're going to argue with them. Right? This is a group of people who are present in the time of Imam Ahmed. Right? They are Ibn Kullab. Ibn Kullab, Al-Harith Al-Muhasibi, and before that, Hussein Al-Karabisi. Right? These are names of people who had, had some knowledge. Had some knowledge. But they began to argue with the Mu'tazila. And because these people were not grounded in knowledge, they weren't grounded in the sunnah, they made some mistakes. They were unable to answer some of the doubts of the Mu'tazila. They couldn't argue the doubts of the Mu'tazila. Right? So the issue that was under discussion was to do with the Qur'an. And was to do with, you know, the Mu'tazila basically said, and this is something that's discussed by Imam al-Sijzi, rahimahullah, in one of his books, uh, and, and he discusses what happened, so I'm going to summarize it really in uh, very, very quickly for a sh shortage of time. Basically, well, before we move on to this, let's just make things clear. What do the philosophers say? They say that the Creator is just something that you just think of oneness in the mind. Think of the idea of oneness. No names, no attributes, no nothing. It's just like an idea in the mind. Yes? that clear? That's what they're saying basically, right? The Jahmiyyah, what they are saying, they are saying Allah has no names, no attributes, we can't describe him with anything because if we do, we made him like the creation. Basically, it's the same as what the philosophers are saying, yeah? Is that clear? What did the Mu'tazila do? The Mu'tazila, they came along, they said, well actually, Allah has names, but we can't accept any attributes, right? But really, this is a trick on their behalf because when they say Allah has names, this was really only a way to like protect themselves because in the Quran clearly we can see that Allah has said that He's Ar-Rahman, Ar-Rahim, Al-Malik, Al-Qudus, As-Salam, and so on and so forth. So to, to protect themselves from the people of the Sunnah, they said, Yes, we believe in the names. But really they didn't. They said, Yes, we believe Allah is Ar-Rahim, but not with mercy. Does that make sense? Can you say someone, yes, this man is generous? And yet he's not generous as a quality. Can, does that make sense? Does it make sense to say Allah is Ar-Rahim, yet he has no attribute of mercy? Can you say Allah is Al-Alim, but not without ilm? 
Does that make sense? No. This was the trick that the Mu'tazila were playing in order to protect themselves. And this is what you'll find with the people of Kalam all the time. Ash'aris, Maturidis, they're always playing these word games to protect themselves, right? So, so Jahmiyyah, we don't accept anything. Mu'tazila, we accept the names, but really they don't. And we don't accept any attributes. Because if you say Allah has attributes, basically now you've made him to be in parts. Allah is composed. Because Allah's knowledge is one part, Allah's mercy is another part, Allah's wisdom is another part, right? And basically you're saying Allah is made of parts. Allah is murakkab. This is tarkib, composition. All this is philosophical baggage from the philosophers. This is what they were saying, right? So, so they denied all the attributes. So Ibn Kullab, Al-Harith Al-Muhasibi, and people like that, they came along and they were debating with the Mu'tazila. And there was a specific argument that they couldn't, they couldn't refute. Why? Because they weren't grounded in the Sunnah. And this argument basically was, basically was, they said, look, look at this Qur'an. In this Qur'an we see that there are verses, and these verses are in order. Alhamdulillahi Rabbil Alameen, Ar-Rahmanir Rahim, Maliki Yawmiddin. And if you say that this is Allah's speech, then... There's the alif and then the lam comes afterwards and then the ha comes afterwards and the meme comes afterwards and the dal comes afterwards. Doesn't this mean like succession? Doesn't this mean like a sequence? And doesn't, doesn't, it, mean that, uh, doesn't it mean that Allah is then somehow, you know, he's subject to events because things are in a... All this nonsense, nonsense, stupidity, foolishness. But Ibn Kullab and these people, they couldn't answer this doubt. They couldn't answer this shubha. So then they thought, mm, how are we gonna, how on earth can we, how can we answer this thing if, if Allah is like confined by time and the sequence and things like that? So what they did was, what Ibn Kullab did, he said, okay, tell you what we'll do. We'll accept all of those attributes in which, which, which are permanent with Allah, right? So for example, Allah's hearing, is it permanent or temporary? Is it permanent or temporary? Allah seeing, does Allah see all the time? Yes. Allah's wisdom, is he always wise? Yeah. So they said those attributes will accept them, no problem. Right? But anything in which Allah's will and choice is involved, we can't accept that. Right? So for example, Allah chooses to speak. Yes, when he wills. That's correct, isn't it? If Allah wills, he will create if he wants to. Yes. Right? So in other words, there are attributes which are tied to Allah's will. Right? They're, not, they're, not, they're not permanent attributes. Allah's anger. Allah becomes angry on account of actions of his servants. Allah becomes pleased on account of actions of his servants. But is Allah always angry? Is anger a permanent attribute? No. Right? So these types of attributes they had a problem with. Ibn Kullab. They couldn't accept these attributes. But as for all the other attributes, yes, Allah is above the throne. Yes, Allah has the attribute of face, hand, eyes. And they were refuting the Mu'tazila on these issues. They have books. Ibn Kullab has a book where he's refuting the Jahmiyyah and the Mu'tazila on these issues. Right? So he accepted Allah is above the throne, accepted Allah's names, accepted most of Allah's attributes. But just this one issue of where anything which is connected to Allah's will, which he chooses to do, and which is not something which is permanent, it's not a permanent attribute, then said we can't accept those things. Right? And for that reason, he was stuck on the issue of the Qur'an. 
He was stuck on the issue of the Quran. So therefore he invented something new which no one said before him. He said, the Quran therefore is only kalam nafsi. The Quran, this Quran is, is, is the Arabic Quran. You know, this is not Allah's speech. This is only an expression of Allah's speech. But the speech which is with Allah, it is kalam nafsi. It is just something that exists with Allah in his, you know, within his self. Anyway, he invented this new saying. Now, from this new saying was the idea that there are two Qur'ans. There's the Qur'an which is with Allah, which is eternal, right? And there is this Qur'an that we have with us, which is the Arabic Qur'an, which consists of letters and words and so on and so forth. And this is what we have, the Arabic Qur'an that we read. This is actually something which is created, right? This statement was never there before. It was never there before. Before when the Salaf were refuting the Mu'tazila, this statement never existed. It was innovated by Ibn Qullab. Why? Because he was just arguing an argumentation which is not from the way of the Salaf. And he also, he wasn't grounded in knowledge like the great scholars. And so he fell uh, prey to their doubts. And therefore he invented this saying. Right? So this now is the way of the Kullabiya. The Kullabiya. The Kullabiya, they accepted all of the names, all of the attributes, most of the attributes. But these specific types of attributes which are connected to Allah's will, Allah's choice, Allah's Mashi'ah, they denied those attributes and then they you know, try to give explanations uh, for them. So this now is Ibn Kullab. Yeah. Sorry, so he's the one who started the Sa'adir. Yeah, Ibarah. Ibarah. That's right, yeah, yeah. Okay, so now, uh, this, this now is Ibn Kullab. And there's a group known as the Kullabiyyah. Right, Kullabiyya, they're present now in some of the lands in Basra. Uh, likewise, some of the Kullabiyya were over towards Samarkand. Samarkand and that place, this is where uh, Al Maturidi, where he was. Right, this is where he was. There were Kullabiyya in that direction. There were Mu'tazila and there were Kullabiyya in that direction. Right, this is now where we come to where the Maturidis and the Ash'aris, where they come from. Right, so let's discuss these two. So, Abu al-Hasan al-Ash'ari, he, in his early age, his, his, uh, his father passed away and his mother married one of the heads of the Mu'tazila. So he was brought up as a Mu'tazili most of his life. He was upon the, the way of, of the Mu'tazila. So whereas Imam Ahmed had demolished the Mu'tazila already, around that time, al-Ash'ari wasn't even born. This shows the propaganda of these people is, is, is baseless. In any case, Abu al-Hasan al-Ash'ari was upon the way of the Mu'tazila for most of his life. And then, when he was in uh, you know, Basra and those places, he sat in the circles of the Kullabiyya. The Kullabiyya was still present. Even though Imam Ahmed spoke against them, they were still present. So he sat and he listened to their speech and basically he accepted their speech. And he made tawbah from I'tizal. And he came out and he announced his you know, repentance from that particular way. So then he was upon the way of Ibn Kullab for a good 10, you know, however many years. And then over time, as he came into contact with the madhab of Imam Ahmed, he slowly began to change and become closer and closer and closer to the time, to, to, to the madhab of Imam Ahmed. So basically the scholars, they say that the, the three periods of, of uh, Abu Hassan al-Ash'ari, first he was a Mu'tazili, then he accepted the ideas of the Kullabiyya. And from there he gradually 
moved closer and closer to the way of Imam Ahmed until he was mostly there in almost everything. Right? This is what uh, is most correct because the scholars do differ about whether there's three stages or two stages. But that, but that which is most correct is, is this view. And his books, he wrote many books, and when we analyze the books, they are a testimony to, 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 to this fact. So now Al-Ash'ari, he was upon, the belief that he was upon was basically that Allah, he accepted the ulu of Allah, Allah is above the throne, he accepted that Allah has the sifat khabariya, that he has the attribute of hand and face and eyes. And, you know, we accepted most of the affairs that the people of the sunnah accepted. Right, so this is Ash'ari on this side. On the other side, near Samarqand, in those places where there were Mu'tazila and the Kullabiyya, uh, Al-Maturidi, he came at the end of the 3rd century, beginning of the 4th century, and he was involved in debates with the Mu'tazila. And likewise, there were Kullabiyya present as well. And these influences led him to develop his school of thought. And that school of thought, it is upon the same foundations of the Mu'tazila. If you read the book of Al-Ma, you know, the book that he wrote, Al-Maturidi, you'll see similar ideas. What is the first obligation? Right? And the first obligation, what do, what, what do the people of the Sunnah say? What is the first obligation? Shahada. And to worship Allah. What do they say? The first obligation is you have to now start using your reason to prove Allah exists. Is this correct? It's not correct, is it? This is what they made the first obligation. Right? Remember those two questions we said. What is the first obligation? And how, through what route do we come to know Allah? Right? First obligation is to make the shahadatan, yes? And then to worship, worship Allah by acquiring knowledge by way of revelation. What did they say? The Ahlul Kalam. They said, the first obligation is now, you have to start looking around and developing a rational proof to prove to yourself Allah exists. Yeah, And then they said, the way you do this is not by way of revelation, it's by way of reason. Reason is what tells you about belief in Allah and what he can be described with and what he cannot be described with. Do you understand? Right? This is the foundation of what, what Ilmul Kalam is, is founded upon. So this is the foundation of what Al-Maturidi was upon. And he took that from the Mu'tazila, who took that from the Jahmiyyah, who took it from the Falasifa. Right? This is the usul of the Maturidi Madhab. Right? And in this, they departed from what Abu Hanifa was upon and what Abu Yusuf was upon and the students of Abu Hanifa because they were upon the Madhab of the Salaf. They never knew any of this Ilmul Kalam. Right? But these Hanifis who came later, they developed this doctrine and then because they ascribed to Abu Hanifa in fiqh, then they tried to throw it upon Abu Hanifa. They began to write works which are not really by Abu Hanifa. And they began to put all this philosophical language, al-ajsam, wal-a'rad, wal-this and that, whatever, is nothing to do with Abu Hanifa. And then they tried to throw it upon Abu Hanifa. Right? This is the Maturidis. So, al-Maturidi, he basically developed ideas which were very similar to the Mu'tazila. And because al-Ash'ari on the other side, he also came from the Mu'tazila, those people who followed him, like Al-Baqilani, Abu Mansur al-Baghdadi, uh, Abu Al-Mu'ali al-Jawaini, Al-Razi, uh, Al-Ghazali, and all those who came, the Ash'aris who came after, then they, they, you know, they ascribed to Al-Ash'ari, but they were really following the Mu'tazila and the Jahmiya. Right? They, 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 they followed them. So, um, 
Yeah, so basically now we have these two groups, the Ash'aris and the Maturidis, they are carrying the ideas that came from the Mu'tazila and the Jahmiyyah. They are the inheritors of that belief. And it came to them by way, first of all, they were, they were from the Mu'tazila, in the case of Al-Ash'ari, or they were debating with the Mu'tazila and interacting with the Kullabiyya. Right? And they took those basic ideas and then they developed their school of thought. Right? So what you see from the Ash'aris and the Maturidis is what they are really doing is they are playing word games. Remember, that, remember we said that the Mu'tazila, they, say, they said that we accept the names of Allah, but really they don't. Do you understand? They said, yes, we accept Allah is Ar-Rahim, but he doesn't have mercy. This is nonsensical, right? This is just word games that you are using to protect yourself and sheed yourself. This is the same thing that the Ash'aris and Maturidis say and do, right? You say to them, Allah is above the throne. They say, they say, yes, yes, we believe Allah is above the throne. But what you mean is different to what they mean. What the Salaf mean is what they mean. What they mean is like, just like, for example, a gold coin is above a silver coin in value. Yes, this is what they mean. They say, yes, we believe Allah is above the throne. We don't deny that. Allah is above the throne. Some of them say this. They say, yes, Allah is above the throne. But what they really mean is, yes, just like a gold coin is worth more than a silver coin, in value and status, this is what they actually really mean. Right? And some of them will be more clear. They will say, oh, actually, you can't say Allah is above because being above is a quality of bodies because being above means a place and a place means a location. Location means that you're occupying space and occupying space means you're a body. Right? That's what, that's what they really are saying. And all of this is from, from Aristotle. Right? It's the poison of Aristotle coming from them. So these people are intoxicated. Like a person is drunk. And when he's speaking drunkenly, you, you can see that he's, he's drunk. Right? Intoxication can be with chemicals. It can be with liquids where your mind is gone. It can also be with terms, terminology and baggage. Right? Your mind is poisoned with like these terms. Ajsam, A'rad, Hawadith, whatever else. Right? And then when you start speaking, it's intoxication. Right? There's a type of intoxication. I'm going to read to you a statement of Imam Ibn Suraj al-Shafi'i, rahimahullah ta'ala, if I can find it, if I can find where it is. Um, ah, here we are. Ibn Suraj al-Shafi'i, in the year 306 Hijrah. Listen to these amazing words. It's quoted by Abu Ismail al-Harawi in Dhammul Kalam, likewise by Ibn Taymiyyah in Bayan Talbis al-Jahmiyyah. Now we are contrasting between the Tawheed of the Messengers and the Tawheed of who? And those who followed their way, right? So we have the philosophers and we have the Ahlul Kalam who are basically in that direction, yes? Is that clear to you? He says, and you want to write this down, Tawheedu, Tawheedu Ahlil Ilmi wa Jama'atil Muslimin Al-Ashhadu an la ilaha illallah وَأَنَّ مُحَمَّدًا رَسُولُ اللَّهِ Was that clear? The Tawheed of the people of knowledge and the Jama'ah of the Muslims is what? What is our Tawheed? It is to say there is none which has the right to be worshipped except Allah and that Muhammad is the messenger of Allah. This is the Tawheed that we know. Is, this, is there any other Tawheed that the Muslims know besides this? 
Is any of the Tawheed? No, this is the Tawheed. Tawheed Ahlil Ilmi wa Jama'atil Muslimin Ashadu an la ilaha illallah wa anna Muhammadan Rasulullah. Wa Tawheed Ahlil Batil wa Tawheed Ahlil Batil Al Khawdu Fil A'radi Wal Ajasami wa innama bu'ithan nabiyyu sallallahu alayhi wa sallam bi inkari thalik. The Tawheed of the people of Batil is to start disputing and delving into what is a body, what is an accident, what is a jism, what is an arad, what is this. Meaning all of this philosophical nonsense that came from Plato, Aristotle, Philo, Judaeus, Clement of Alexandria, you know, Augustine, Hippo, John of Damascus, Jahm bin Safwan, Ja'd bin Dirham, Mu'tazila, Jahmiya, Ash'aris, Maturid, all this nonsense. That is their Tawheed. It is not the Tawheed of the people of knowledge and the Jama'ah of the Muslimin. وَإِنَّمَا بُعِثَ النَّبِيُّ صَلَّى اللَّهُ عَلَيْهِ وَسَلَّمْ بِإِنْكَارِ ذَلِكِ The messenger was sent to actually reject all that and to denounce all of that. This is connected to the verse. سُبْحَانَ رَبِّكَ رَبِّ الْعِزَّةِ أَمَّا يَسِفُونَ Allah Zawajal rejects everything which, he's, which is used to describe him which came before. All that nonsense. And only what the messengers came with is acceptable in describing Allah Azza wa Jal. So you can see here now that the Salaf were very, were very, very clear that they knew this way was batil, was, was, was falsehood. Right? And these, this is the ilmul kalam that the Salaf condemned. Have you, have you, you must have heard many, many narrations from the Salaf condemning the, the people of Kalam, the people of Ilmul Kalam. I'll find you some statements uh, from them. This is what they were speaking about when they, when they used to make these statements, when they condemned Ilmul Kalam. Uh, so for example... Imam al-Shafi'i he said, My ruling regarding the people of Kalam is that they are to be beaten with palm branches. This is Imam al-Shafi'i speaking about the people who were involved in this type of falsafa and Kalam. And this includes the Ash'aris and Maturidis. This hukum here, here of Imam al-Shafi'i is a hukum upon the Ash'aris and the Maturidis because they weren't present in his time. If they were present in his time, or in the time of Imam Ahmed, then they would have had something else coming to them. Right? Because we know how Imam Ahmed dealt with Ibn Kullab, and how the likes of Hussein al-Karabisi, how they were dealt with. They were, you know, they, were, they were reviled and scorned for what they did. Why? Because the Mu'tazila were finished. They were dead. They were dead. There wouldn't have been no Ash'aris or Maturidis after that if it hadn't been for the likes of Ibn Kullab and those kind of people. Right? So, so, uh, this is the ruling of Imam al-Shafi'i rahimahullah ta'ala. My ruling regarding the people of Kalam is that they are beaten with palm branches and shoes. Then they are to be carried upon camels and paraded amongst the kinsfolk whilst it is being announced about them. This is the reward of the one who abandoned the book and the sunnah and turned to Kalam. Right? This is one statement from Imam al-Shafi'i. He also said, 
My ruling upon the people of Kalam is the ruling of Umar upon Sabir. Sabir was an individual in the time of Umar bin al-Khattab who would go to the Muslims and start asking about certain verses. What does this verse mean? What does that verse mean? What does this verse mean? What does that verse mean? Right? So Umar summoned him, brought him, took some palm branches, beat him on the head so hard that Sabir said, wait, wait a minute, stop, stop, stop. Part of my head's gone. Right? And then, you know, he told, he basically uh, exiled him and whatever else because he was asking questions he shouldn't be about the book of Allah Azawajal. So Ash-Shafi'i said, you know, a hundred and how many years afterwards, my ruling upon these people of Kalam is the ruling of Umar upon Sabir. Likewise, uh, so many statements uh, from, uh, so many, but you know, you know that Imam Ahmed, Imam Malik, Imam Ash-Shafi'i, Abu Hanifa, all of them, they basically condemned. They basically condemned this type of uh, indulgence in kalam. So, where have we got to? We basically discussed the Jahmiyyah and the Mu'tazila in the second century. We then moved to Ibn Kullab in the third century, who is now a bridge. He's a bridge between the Mu'tazila and the Ash'aris and the Maturidis, right? And the Ash'aris and the Maturidis they drew from the Mu'tazila and from the Kullabiya. And this is how their school developed, right? Now, if you, if you look at the base, the base of the doctrines of the Maturidiya and the Ash'aris, you will see that really they are identical to the doctrines of the Mu'tazil and Jahmiya, except that they play with words in order to hide what they really believe. That's the secret, right? So their belief really is that the Qur'an is created. But then they'll have loads of like, words and techniques and methods they'll use to actually hide that fact. Right? Likewise with Allah's, Allah's ulu, that he's above the, the, the seven heavens. They'll play word games. We say, oh yes, we believe that Allah is above. What they really mean is that he's above in status, in, 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 in rank and status, not in actual that Allah himself is above, above the heavens. Right? And then they'll you know, do, you know, do the same with numerous other uh, attributes as well. So, this kind of, although it's not a good comprehensive treatment, um, you know, there's a lot more detail that could have been given, but I think you got the general idea, right? The general idea, there's only this way here, prophets and messengers, or there's that way over there. Either you use wahi and naql as the foundation, or you're going to use, if you're going to use aql, what's going to happen? you're going to be forced in that direction to reject everything. That's what's going to happen. And that's why if you look at all of these groups, which one of these groups, I'm going to test your understanding now, which one of these groups is the most consistent? Huh? Jahmi, why? Why? Why are they the most consistent? Huh? Because they outright negated everything. And this is, this is a coherent position. This makes sense. It makes sense, doesn't it? Because if you're saying, hang on, the Creator, we can't describe Him with any names and attributes, otherwise we will turn Him into a body like the bodies. Right? Because what they're saying is, look, what they're saying is, look, there's no thing in existence except that if we look at it, you know, it's a bottle, has length, has width, it has texture, whatever else. And, you know, these attributes, you can't have attributes on their own. This is what they're saying. Can you imagine length 
existing by itself. It can't connect. Right? This is an attribute. Attributes must have what? Something to exist in. This is right, isn't it? Yeah. Is this true or not? Yeah. Attributes can't exist on their own. It has to be in something, doesn't it? Right? And so, what they are saying is, if Allah had attributes, it means he would have a body. Do you get it? This is the falsafa again. Right? If Allah has attributes, it must mean he's a body. Or, you know, so, so, um, so what they said was that Allah cannot be described with anything at all. Right? And this is a consistent position, isn't it? It's coherent, isn't it? It makes sense, doesn't it? If you accept that premise, it makes sense, doesn't it? Right? And so they went to such a level that they said, do not describe Allah with... Because you can, you can describe something in positives and you can describe something in negatives. Right? So if I said... So this is what, this is, this is what it led them to. That they were so scared of us describing Allah with any attribute that they said, we'll only describe Him with negatives. Do you understand? So you say, okay, Allah is not blind. Do you understand? Do you understand? So basically you're avoiding giving Allah an attribute so you don't make him like a body. So you're not saying Allah is seeing. Because if you said Allah is seeing, an attribute it means that to have the attribute of seeing, there must be a body and there must be a whatever else. So we say Allah is not ignorant. Yeah? Allah is not deaf. Allah, Allah does not sleep. Right? Negatives. Do you understand this? This is what's called negative theology. Right? This is what the Greeks were upon. This is what Plotinus was upon. This is what came to the Ahlul Kalam. This is how they speak about Allah. Right? So, so if you are consistent in this basic idea you took from the Greeks, then the, the most consistent position is to say, we don't describe Allah with anything at all. No names, no attributes, no actions, no nothing. But this now is pure atheism, is it not? Is this not atheism? That's why the Salaf, they recognize this. And Imam Ahmed recognized this. So they said that Jahm is saying that Allah is, is no thing. Because no, nothing, nothing can exist except that it must have an attribute. You can't think of anything in your mind which doesn't have an attribute. It's non-existent. Right? So really what the Jahmiyyah is, that's why, you remember those statements we read from Hamad bin Zaid and Ayuba Sakhtiyani, what they were saying? That these Jahmiyyah are trying to say there's nothing above the heaven. Meaning that there's no deity. Because this is what this position really necessitates. That Allah is nothing. Right? So, on this side, you're either consistent and you accept the Quran and the Sunnah and you say, all those principles that Abu Mu'adh spoke of in his lecture, we describe Allah with whatever he described himself with, whatever his messenger described him with, without asking how, without likening, without this, without that. This is a uniform principle, is it not? This is a uniform, coherent principle that we apply to everything which Allah described Himself with, whether it is His names, His attributes, His actions. And there's no problem for us in that because there's no laysa kamithlihi shay, wahu samir basir. There's nothing in what Allah described Himself which necessitates resemblance. There's nothing. So Allah has knowledge, unlike our knowledge. Allah has hearing, unlike our hearing. Allah has seeing, unlike our seeing. Allah has life, Unlike our life, Allah's hands unlike our hands. And we apply this to every single thing uniformly. There's no incoherence, there's no inconsistency, inconsistency. there's no contradiction. This is wadih to everybody. This is clear, isn't it? Is it not? Clear. But if you now are upon this, 
the only position is you have to take the same position as the philosophers and say that Allah or the creator or the first cause or whatever they call him is only an existence in the mind. He only exists in your mind because only in the mind can you think of an entity which doesn't have an attribute. Do you understand? There are some things which exist only in your mind. Like if I said to you, um, well, no, if I made something up, some creature for example, you know, an elephant which flies and, you know, which can make a cup of tea or something, whatever else, and I made something up totally fallacious and I fabricated it, this exists only in my mind. It does not exist in external reality. True? True? Yes. So similarly, there are some things which you think of, but they can only exist in your mind, not in external reality. So the idea of a creator that the philosophers and the Jahmiya, that they came to on account of this philosophical babble and nonsense, is that his existence is an existence that you, that you can think of only in the mind, not in external reality. Right? So really, there are only two positions. There are only two positions. Either it is this over here, or it is that over there. Right? Now, these people in the middle, who are the people of Kalam, right? So, remember we said the Jahmiya are basically, they're consistent. They're over there, and they're saying, we don't accept any names, attributes. In the middle, you've got the Mu'tazila, Kullabiya, Ash'ariya, Maturidiya, all of these are full of contradiction. Incoherence. Right? So what will happen is, and this, this is really what you will see when you study all of their theology, you will see, for example, the Maturidi will come along. Let's start with the Jahmiya. We know already that the Mu'tazila, they really believe the belief of the Jahmiya, but they were scared from the Muslim scholars so they just began to claim, oh yes, we believe in the names. We believe in the names. But if you believe in the names, you have to believe in the attributes. Because how can you have someone who is Al-Alim, who has no ilm? Al-Rahim, who has no rahmah? This is impossible, right? So now they're playing word games and they're being inconsistent. This is a contradiction. This is why they were scorned and rejected and refuted by the Salaf, right? So this is a clear contradiction, is it not? How can he say, yes, I accept Allah is Ar-Rahman, Ar-Rahim. But you know what? He, he doesn't have the attribute of mercy because if he had an attribute, it means his body would be composed. He would be composed. This is contradiction. Nonsense. Nonsense. So then you have the Ash'aris and the Maturidis and then they will turn to the Mu'tazila and the Mu'tazila will say, ah, look, you know, you, um, you say Allah has mercy. Uh, sorry, you say Allah has uh, knowledge and hearing. Because even the, the mercy, the Ash'aris and Maturidis don't accept, uh, the, the, the basically, in general, they don't accept the attribute of mercy or wisdom or things like that. Uh, but the, the attributes they do affirm, let's stick with them. Um, uh, the Mu'tazila say, you say Allah has ilm. You say Allah has power. You say Allah has hearing and seeing. Right? So then the Maturidis and Ash'aris will say, hold on, wait a minute. Just because there is agreement in the name, does not, does not mean that the realities are the same. Do you understand that, yeah? So if we say that Allah has ilm, and we have ilm, just because the word ilm is the same, doesn't mean that the realities behind them are the same. Right? Like my ilm is not the same, you know, our ilm is not the same as Allah's ilm. This is clear, isn't it? So the Maturidis, this is the actual, the actual argument that Matu al-Maturidi uses in his book to refute the Mu'tazila. Right? But then... When we use the same argument against them, which is identical, we say, hold on a minute, Allah's 
hand, the, the name, the word hand, although it's, it's, it's the same in wording and meaning, the reality, the haqiqah behind it is different between Allah and between us. Then they don't accept this. This now is a contradiction in argument, right? And I'll explain to you why this is. Shaykh al-Sanabim gives two beautiful examples in Atad Muriyah. He says, look, when he's refuting these people, let's take the soul, for example, the soul. Can, does anybody know the reality of the soul? Now, does anybody know? What's it made of? What's its essence made of? Does anybody know? Can anybody know? Anybody seen a soul? Okay. Can a soul hear? Can a soul hear? Yes, it can. Can a soul hear? Does a soul arise? Does a soul come down? Right. So, how does the soul hear? How does it hear? Okay. But hearing and hearing, we hear as humans in this form, and there's hearing, right? Are they the same? Just because the name is the same, does it, is the reality the same? Yes or no? It's not, is it? Right? So look at this. This is an example within the creation. There are two created things where we can understand the meaning. We understand what it means to hear because to hear is different to see. And to see is different to know. Right? These are clear different meanings in our minds. How we can distinguish them in our minds, right? Right? So if it is possible for two created things in Allah's creation where for one of them we know the meaning and the reality... Right? So you know that the meaning and the reality here, I can see, I can hear. I, I, you know. But for the other one, we know only the meaning but not the reality. Do you understand? Right? So we know what it means if the soul can hear, the soul arises, but we don't know the, the reality of it. Yeah? If that is possible for two things, between two things in the creation, then it is even more so between the creation and between the creator. Do you understand? So for example, therefore it is even more so that... The ilm which we have, we understand its meaning. And the ilm which Allah has, we understand its meaning. But the realities are totally different. You understand? So when we come along and we use that same argument against the Maturidi and the Ash'ari, which he uses against the Mu'tazili and the Jahmi, he won't accept it from us, even though he's using that same argument against the Jahmi and the Mu'tazili. Contradiction. It's contradiction, right? Blatant contradiction. So, so the point being... That all of these people, they have a complete contradiction, right? Either they should be over there, or they just go with the Jahmiya. That's why the Salaf said, that's why they used to call them, the Salaf used to call these people, they are the Makhanith. They are the Makhanith of the Jahmiya. Makhanith means someone who's neither male or female. Either be a man, just be a full man and join the people of the Sunnah, or... You know, be, be effeminate and remain with the Jahmiya. Don't stick in the middle playing these games and, you know, using false argumentation, contradicting yourself and using word games. Either be over there or be over here. Don't be in the middle as, you know, the makhanith of the Jahmiya. This is what the Salaf actually said. The, 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 the scholars of, of Ahl Sunnah, they, they say this because this is, the real, this is their reality. They're neither here, they're neither there. And the reality is that if you are not with the prophets and messengers then basically you will be pulled in that direction over here with the philosophers and the Jahmiya. Why? Because 
if you were to follow the full logical uh, sequence, you are obligated to say the same thing as the Jahmiyyah. Right? The Ash'aris to remain consistent, really, they have to follow through all of the arguments, it would take them to what the Jahmiyyah are upon. This is how you would be truthful and consistent. Right? But everything is basically, there's contradictions, there's holes, uh, there's, you know, uh, this is a whole subject and topic in itself, the contradictions between, within the theology of the Ash'aris and the Maturidis, especially the Ash'aris. Right? Because there's some difference between the Maturidis and Ash'aris. Um, in general, the Maturidis have better answers to certain things, uh, and they have disputes between themselves, but this is a whole topic in and of itself. So, I think we'll finish. Uh, uh, let's just make sure, sure, first of all, is everybody clear now what is going on? Yeah. yeah. This is an issue to do with aqal and naqal. Aqal and naqal. Right? It's either revelation is what we use as the source of our knowledge, or it is aqal which we use as the source of our knowledge. And the aql these people used was whose aql? It was the aql of Aristotle and Plato, right? And the Jews, Christians and Sabia who were basically poisoned by that. This is the aql that they are talking about, right? Also another proof, tell me, if aql was a sound basis, how come all of these people, they're differing with each other? Why is the Jahmi saying one thing? Why is the Mu'tazili saying another thing? Why is the Ash'ari saying another thing? And why is the Maturidi saying another thing? Why are you all differing then? Everybody's huh? are different. Yeah. Why are you all different? Why are you fighting amongst each other? Because the Jahmi will say to the Mu'tazili, you are a Mujassim Mushrik Kafir. Because you affirm names for Allah. And the Mu'tazili will say to the Ash'ari, you are Mujassima Mushabbiha because you make composition. You made Allah Murakkab. You've affirmed multiple attributes, which means there's multiple deities and he's composed. You are Mushrikun. Mujassima, Mushabbiha, Yuwakufar. Right? And then, you know, so the same thing, they're saying this to each other, and they're fighting with each other. If Aql was the definitive knowledge, because they say Aql is Fat'i, it is, it is definitive in, in providing knowledge. If that was the case, why are you all arguing with each other then? Why are you all fighting and leading, you know, calling each other to be astray? But as for the people of the Sunnah, tell me, from the people of the Sunnah, from the time of the messenger of Allah Sallallahu from the Khulafa and the, you know, the Salaf and then after them and so on and so forth to this day of ours tell me if you to pick up a, a statement of Imam Ibn Baz and you go and you go back into every single century and every single major alim you go work your way backwards Shaykh al-Islam Muhammad bin Abdul Wahhab Shaykh al-Islam uh, you know uh, Ibn al-Qayyim, Ibn Taymiyyah and going all the way back and every single Imam and you just look at what they say in fact and you look at their statements and what they say would you find any difference? would you find any difference? alright let me bring to you some statements their statement is one their statement is one and because it is taken from the Kitab and the Sunnah Imam al-Darimi rahimahullah ta'ala وَنَصِفُهُ بِمَا وَصَفَ بِهِ نَفْسَهُ وَوَصَفَهُ بِهِ الرَّسُولُ We describe him with what he described himself and with what his messenger described him. This is Imam al-Darmi and he's saying this basically 500 years, 600 years before Shaykh al-Islam ibn Taymiyyah. Right? Can anyone find fault with this principle? Can an Ash'ari come along and when we say to him, we describe Allah 
with what he described himself and what his messenger described him with. And we negate things from Allah, what Allah negated from himself and what his messenger negated from himself. Tell me which, which Asher is going to refute that? Which Maturi is going to refute? Who, how can they say this is Batil? Tell me, how can they say this is Batil? Is this methodology Batil? Right? So our speech, our principles, our foundations are taken from the Quran and from the Sunnah and there is perfect agreement from the first, from the first, from, uh, from the first right to the very end. Right? All of it is one thing consistent in conformity with each other. But if you look at the people of the Kalam, amongst themselves, even the Maturidis, these have these disputes. Hang on, wait a minute. Do we follow Tafweed? Or shall we stick to a bit of Tafweed? Or shall we take a bit of this and a bit of that? But where shall we apply it? What about in this case? Can we apply it here? Some say yes, another say no. All disputing, with, don't, they don't have a single united word about when is Tafweed applicable and when is Tawil applicable. Right? So they have these discussions amongst, amongst themselves. They're not united. How can this be the truth then? How can this be the truth? So uh, the point being, Ya Ikhwan, what you need to understand then is that Ilmul Kalam came into the Ummah, a poison, and this poison that they brought, it necessitated from them that they have an evil perception to the revealed texts. They have an evil perception to the Qur'an and to the Sunnah because they believe that the Qur'an and the Sunnah came with words and came with statements which if just left like they are, the common people would be become mushrikun, mujassimun, uh, mushabbihun. Right? Because of this baggage that they brought into Islam. Then, in order to resolve this issue, they began to invent all of these things. Al-Mutawatir Al-Ahad Right? Distinguish between these two. Al-Majaz, Al-Haqiqa. Between these two. Mutashabihat. Right? Begin another, another one of the arguments. That the verses of the attributes are Mutashabihat. Right? They have an, an argument there as well. And likewise, Ta'wil was just a mechanism by which they could address those verses which they believed contained Kufr. If left as they are. Right? So, they have, they have, they have, they have statements like, um, like that. And then there was a problem with Ta'wil because this is the problem that they realized. One person comes along and says the meaning of hand is Qudra. And another person comes along and says no, actually the Ta'wil is actually Ni'mah, favor. Right? So who's right? There's no way of telling who's right. Why? Because first of all, this is not the meaning of the eye to begin with. You're trying to distort it. But then they realize, hang on, how come we're coming with different ta'wils for the same verse? You know, so they realized, hang on, this is not really a sound, this is not really a sound method to deal with this problem of this tajseem and tashbih, which apparently is in the speech of Allah and the speech of his messenger, right? They realized this, right? So then they came with another mechanism. They said, you know what? Let's just make tafweed. With tafweed, we solve the problem altogether. We say basically all of these texts, we don't know what the meanings are. No one can know the meanings. And basically you've washed everything clean. You've washed everything clean. Right? So tafweed is more like a heavy duty mechanism. It does the job. It gets rid of all of the kufr that they allege is in the Quran and in the Sunnah. Meaning all of the tajseem and the tashbih. 
right? Which is what they, from their angle, from their angle, say in the Quran, you know, Allah's ascribed to Himself a face and hands, and He's above, above the throne. All of this is tajseem. It means Allah is a body. This is this is their perception of the texts. So we have to somehow we have to sanitize these texts. We have to clean these texts. We have to neutralize these texts. So ta'wil as a mechanism was okay, but they realized, hang on, this, this can't be right because some, someone's got to be wrong. Right? Either it's qudra or it's ni'mah. We're speculating. Who knows what's right? Well, we don't know because we're speculating. So this mechanism is not really a good solid mechanism. So then they came with tafweed. Tafweed. Let's just say all the texts, we don't know what they mean. They're just words and the meanings are unknown and no one can really know them. This way you've just cleaned everything in a single go. And that's why they differ amongst themselves as to which approach shall we take. Some of them say, Tafweed is the way to go. Others say, well actually no, it's Ta'weel. Others say, no, we'll stick to Tafweed as a general rule, but then we'll apply Ta'weel in some instances. Right? All of this you find in the books of the Maturidis. They differ with each other. How can this be the truth? How can this be the haq? It isn't. So, there's a lot more that can be said. Um, since it's getting late, and I know probably many people have travelled, I think we'll have to cut short at this stage. Um, but this is a vast and mighty topic, and perhaps maybe on another occasion we can do something a bit more detailed, perhaps a seminar on this subject in a bit more detail. Because really, in this lesson, I was unable to make extensive quotations. If I started going into the quotations from the Imams of the Salaf, and you know, it would then become even longer. So what I tried to do was to try to give the basic structure, the general idea, the overview, the, the picture of the jigsaw puzzle, right? so that you have at least a basic understanding that when an Ash'ari comes along or a Maturidi comes along and starts speaking this language, you know exactly where he's coming from. Right? Allah is not subject to events. Allah is not confined by space. Allah is not confined by time. Allah is not a body. Allah is not... You know where this is coming from. This is not from the prophets and messengers. Right? This is from those people. Right? So at least you know where they're coming from. Then it's just a matter of basically looking individually at you know, the, the shubha or the argument or the doubt and dealing with it appropriately. Um, so as I said, this requires maybe a proper seminar to go into detail. There are many, many quotations from the Salaf that can be brought. And if anyone wants more detailed information, in fact, there are two articles which are published on the website asharis.com. You go to asharis.com. Uh, there are two articles that I really suggest that you take them and you print them and you study them. Because basically they, they contain whatever I've mentioned in, in my lesson today, but in a bit more detail and with actual quotations from their books and also outlining the foundations from some of the Imams of the Salaf. Like this thing which I've spoken about, Aql and Naql, you'll see that Imam Al-Lalaka'i, Rahimahullah, has some excellent words about it. And likewise, Imam Al-Sijzi has some excellent words about it. And likewise, Abu Al-Mudhaffar Al-Sam'ani, has excellent words about it. And I've put the, all that's been put together in an article. It's about 70 pages. So if you go to asharis.com, uh, the article, uh, the article, the article is in fact a refutation of some Maturidi uh, person. 
who try to spread the deen of the Jahmiyyah, trying to claim that the Salaf, they did ta'wil and ta'wil. Uh, but so this article is the detailed refutation of that. And the title of the articles are The Divine Attributes. The Divine Attributes, the Righteous Salaf versus the Heretical Kalam Schools, part one and part two. They are two PDFs. One is nine pages, one is about 70 pages. If you read them, it will consolidate, consolidate everything that you've heard in this lecture. And likewise, what Abu Mu'adh talked about as well, because there are principles also mentioned, the same as what Abu Mu'adh covered in his, in his lesson. So I really strongly recommend that you go, you print them off, and you spend time just reading through them. All of it will make sense on the basis of what you've heard within this lecture today. So, to close then, I want to make a number of points. Sometimes you find that when you look, when you deal with history, history can expose things which, like if you were to argue with an Ashari just about any issue, for example, about Allah's ulu, or Allah's sifat khabariya, you just involve an argument, right? He's not going to be convinced. You're not going to convince him. Right? It's just going to be an argumentation backward vowed. Sometimes these situations arise. Right? But when you go into history, history is something that can't be rewritten. You can't falsify history. Right? Because, because this history, you can go back in the history books. You can survey all of the materials. You can get non-Muslim academics. You can get their writings. You can go into the writings, the, the research which has been done about the Christian mutakallimeen, the Jewish mutakallimeen, the Ahlul Khan amongst the Jews, you put all that together and you bring it all together, you get lots of non-biased sources, you put it all together and you can study all that and you get a clear picture of history. Right? That can't be rejected by anybody. The Ashari can't deny that. Right? The, the Maturidi can't deny that history. Right? So sometimes you can achieve something with history and the historical record that you can't achieve with just arguing on individual issues. Do you understand that point? Yeah. Right? So when you come and you say basically, that's why when you come to an Ashari now, and you, you don't debate about anything about is Allah above his throne, right? You say, that's, because th that's a secondary issue. Right? What you want to debate about them is, tell me, why have you left the Wahi and the, and the Naqal, and why have you gone to the Aqal of a polytheist star-worshipped idolater? Answer me that question first before I spell anything else. Right? Do you understand? You can now pin them down to an issue that they have to answer. And history is on your side. They can't deny that history. So basically you have no right to be start, to, to start debating and arguing about, you know, ta'wil, ta'fweed, uh, is Allah above the throne, above the throne. Forget all that. You have no right speaking about that. But what you have to explain to me, to us, is tell me why have you left the way of the prophets and messengers in which wahi, naqal, is the foundation and why have you started writing in your books that aql is definitive and aql is the source and aql is the foundation which you only took from the star-worshipping idolaters from the Greek philosophers and the Jewish mutakallimun and the Christian mutakallimun and the Sabiya mutakallimun. You took it from them because it's all in their books. It's all in history that they are speaking the same language that you're speaking. Allah is not a jism, not an arad, not a johur, not above, not below. All this nonsense is in their books. So tell me, why have you left that? Why have you left the Quran and the Sunnah 
and you've gone to that. Explain that to me first. And let them answer that question. So, so basically, you don't allow these people are not allowed to start discussing these individual issues. It's a legitimate for you. You need to explain this first. Why you've gone here. Right? And then you'll find that they're stuck. Because you know that the historical record is on your side. And you know that the history of the second century and the third century of Islam, when the Salaf were fighting the Jahmi and the Mu'tazila, you know that that history is on your side. Right? That's why from their tactics is that they will always go to the later scholars. Al-Nawawi, Ibn Hajar, Al-Qurtubi. Why? Because these scholars came much afterwards in the 7th, 8th, 9th centuries. Right? And in those times, basically, the Ash'ari spread you know, in certain areas. They gained control and power, just like the Mu'tazila did. And many, many righteous scholars, learned scholars, they grew up in that environment, thinking that this way is the truth. They never knew anything else. Right? Because of the environment they were in. So these deceptive people, when they want to argue, they'll go to those scholars, but they won't mention to you, they'll run away from discussing about, well, what was the argument between the Salaf and the Jahmiyyah? And the Salaf and the Mu'tah? What was the argument between them? Right? Because if you go there, it'll quickly become clear that these people are the followers of the Jahmiyyah and the Mu'tazila. The Usul are the same as the Jahmiyyah and the Mu'tazila. Do you understand? So this is from their tricks. Ibn Hajar, Al Nawawi. They'll go to these later scholars, right? So this is from their from their from their poison from from, from their tricks. Um, so with that we'll conclude. I mean if that if there are any questions that we can try to address inshallah ta'ala, we'll try to very, very briefly. But as I said, go to asharis.com. There's very, very detailed information on this topic in on that website, and especially these two articles, then you'll benefit from that, inshallah ta'ala. I'll try to answer these questions very quickly because we, we, we are short of time. F- first question, uh, if I can read this, uh, it's hard to read the writing. But basically the question is saying, um, oh, where was it gone? There was another one here, similar, a similar question. Um, we cannot understand the Quran and the Hadith without understanding of the Ashari Maturidi. Every narration of Hadith chain is Ashari Maturidi in it. This is False, this is batil, this is not true. Right? Name me one single Ash'ari who narrated, who's a narrator in the chain of narration from the Messenger Muhammad to Imam Ahmed, Imam Malik, Imam Bukhari. Name me one Ash'ari. Name me Imam Turidi in that chain of narration from the Messenger of Allah to one of his companions from a Tabi' Tabi'een. Two from one of the Imams of the Salaf, Imam Malik, Abu Hanifa, Shafi'i, Imam Ahmed, Al-Bukhari, Al-Tirmidhi, right? N- name me one. Name me one. We'll give them 30 years to bring us one Ash'ari Maturidi, doctrinal Ash'ari Maturidi, who exists in the chain of narration, through whom either Tafsir was narrated till it reached At-Tabari, for example, or fiqh was narrated till it reached Imam Malik, Abu Hanifa, Al-Shafi'i, uh, Imam Ahmed, or ilmul hadith, or meaning that in the period of hadith, as the hadith was actually being compiled and put together. This is what we mean, right? Because they're trying to make it appear to you as if you can't learn your knowledge unless 
you get something which is being transmitted through an Ashir Yamaturidi. Right? What they mean really is Ibn Hajar and Nabawi and the explanations they, they wrote upon hadith like, you know, Riyadh Salihin, Sahih Muslim, uh, Sahih al Bukhari. So this is what they really basically mean. And also the texts on uh, Al Mustalah and Ilm al Hadith and so on and so forth. This is what they really mean. But in reality, those scholars actually inherited that knowledge from those who came before them. It's not their knowledge. Right? They just put the knowledge together. Right? Whether it is tafsir or whatever else, they, they, they wrote that and they acquired that because it came to them. That knowledge didn't originate with them. They inherited that knowledge from someone else. And that came from someone else. And that came from someone else. So the real question is, tell me, name me, one person who was an Ashiri or Maturidi, right, between the Messenger of Allah Sallam and between Al-Bukhari. You won't find one. Or Imam Muslim, or Tirmidhi, or Tabari, who compiled the tafsir based upon the Athar. Right? Fine, well, you won't find any. You won't find an Ashiri or Maturidi anywhere. Right? And as for these scholars, like An-Nawawi, Ibn Hajar, uh, and, and so on and so forth and uh, our position is that these are great and mighty scholars we ask for Allah's mercy upon them they did a great and mighty service to Islam and the Muslims and their works are of tremendous benefit however these scholars they lived in a time in which the Ash'aris were dominant and they affected many of the rulers they had power they had schools and many righteous scholars, they grew up in a time when this was the only, basically the only approach. They thought that this approach, that this way was actually the way of the Sabbath. They, they wrongly believed this because this was the only, and they hadn't access to all of the books of the Salaf. Like, I mean to all of the books of the Salaf. So that they could see that now there's a difference between what the Salaf are saying, between what Ahlul Qam are saying. In fact, on some issues, they did. Like Ibn Hajar, for example, he refutes the Ash'aris on a number of issues. Now, what is the first obligation? Right? Because these scholars, because they were dedicated to hadith, they could see through certain things that it wasn't correct. Right? So this is how we view these scholars. They are, they, are, they are great and mighty scholars. We respect them. We love them. We benefit from their works. But there are circumstances which can explain why they were upon what they were upon. Right? So... Uh, answer that question okay there's a question here why do people like Hamza Yusuf hide behind a school of thought like Malikiya and ascribe their belief to Malik this is something which happened to all the schools of thought right just like we mentioned in the talk that basically we distinguish between the original Hanafis Abu Hanifa Abu Yusuf and you know the, the students that they were upon the Salafi Aqidah Right, and then after them came those people who ascribed to the Hanafi Madhab, but they were affected by Ilmul Kalam. Then they tried to throw that Ilmul Kalam upon Abu Hanifa, and he's free from that. None of that language came from Abu Hanifa. Right, in a similar manner, it happened with Malik, happened with Imam Shafi'i. Most of the Shafi'is today are Ash'aris, right? And Shafi'i, Rahimullah, was free from Ilmul Kalam, he condemned Ilmul Kalam, and then they tried to throw their filth upon Imam Shafi'i. Likewise with Imam Ahmed bin Hanbal, the same thing happened. There were some Hanbalis in Baghdad, you know, 100, 150 years afterwards, they were actually, they started studying under the Ash'aris, like Al-Baqilani and others, right? Uh, Hanbalis in Baghdad. And they become affected by this. Then they try to ascribe this to Imam Ahmed. And as for the well-known students of Imam Ahmed, 
Nothing like that is narrated from Imam Ahmad. Right? So this happened to all of the schools of thought. Many of the scholars who came afterwards, they became like Ibn al-Jawzi, Ibn Aqil. They became affected by the Mu'tazila. Right? And they spoke with the belief and the statements of the Jahmiyyah and the Mu'tazila. Right? So they erred and they, they made mistakes. Likewise amongst the Malikis, amongst the Shafi'is, amongst the... You know, but if you go back to the very early Shafi'is and early Malikis, you find that their belief is the belief of the Salaf. So this, do not allow this to basically confuse you, just because some of those who ascribe to the Imams, the four Imams, does not mean that, that, the, that the Imams were actually upon that Ilmul Kalam, which the Salaf actually uh, condemned. Well, that's the contradiction because it's like contradiction. I'm Ash, I, I, I'm, I'm Hanafi in fiqh, I'm Maturidi in creed, and I am Naqshbandi or Tabi in tariqa. Yeah. 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 You know, you, I mean, you can have it. You can follow the fiqh of Abu Hanifa, but the creed is only the creed of the Salaf. You can follow the fiqh of a Shafi'i, but the creed is only the creed of the Salaf, right? So we'll we'll grant you that that maybe you can study the usul of the of the Hanafis or the Shafi'is or the Malikis or the Hanbalis as a means of you know gaining fiqh in the religion. But we'll grant that. But creed, you can only be Salafi in creed, because all of those Imams had one creed. There's no difference between the creed of these Imams. There's only one creed, right? So you can't have these different creeds. Um, who are the Sabi'ah? Sabi'ah were a group of people, they're the ones to whom Ibrahim al-Islam was sent to, right? They were people who used to observe the stars, observe the sun, observe the moon, and they began to worship them, and they went to mathematics and astronomy and things like this. And um, these people, they, also, they were also affected by Greek philosophy. Right, so there were many of them who were basically into Greek philosophy in the Muslim lands uh, when Islam came. So these people, Sabi'a, are the remnants of those people to whom Ibrahim al-Islam was sent to, and they departed far, far, far away from from uh, prophethood, messengership, and and revealed uh, knowledge. But they were basically star worshippers, idolaters, uh, and many of them were affected by Greek philosophy, and many of them were found in in a region. Uh, called Harran, which is where Ja'ad bin Dirham used to travel to and take knowledge from those people, right? I mentioned this in, in the talk. Some of the Ash'ari said to say Allah is above the throne is to say he is in a physical place. Can you please elaborate upon this? Ya Ikhwan, this is straight from the book of Aristotle. It's straight from the book of Aristotle. I... I'm going to actually literally quote you. you, know, if you just, uh, uh, to save me time, go to asharis.com. Go to asharis.com. In the search box, in the search box, put Aristotle, Aristotle, and you'll probably get about six, seven, eight articles. In one of those articles, it quotes you straight from the book of Aristotle, talking about place and location and space and body. Right? If something is in a place and a location, then it, you know it's confined by space, and this means it's a body. All of this nonsense, this is what I'm saying to you, that once you understand all of this, 
And then Ashri comes to you and says, oh, you can't tell us about the throne because about the throne means that he's confined by space and therefore he's the body and this now is Tadzim and Kufr. You know exactly where he's coming from. You know? Just like if an intoxicated person came to you, you could smell alcohol from his mouth. You could tell this man, you're intoxicated, you know what you're saying. Right? This is the same thing. As soon as you start hearing Jism, Arad, Johar, and all this Tahiyyus, Makan, Jihad, as soon as you start hearing all this nonsense philosophical babble, you know straight away this man has been drinking from the books of Aristotle and the, and the Mutakallimun of the Yahud and the Nasara and the Sabi'a and from Jahan bin Safwan and from John of Damascus and Clementine of Alexandria and Philo Judas of Alexandria and Augustine of Hippo and all of these Mutakallimun from the Yahud, Nasara, whatever and from Jahan and the Mu'tazila this is what he's been this is the language he's coming from this language is not known from any of the messengers it is not known in any revealed book. So these questions are illegitimate for them. You've got to ask them, you've got to, you've got to say to them, tell me, how are star-worshipping polytheists and their language and their nonsense, how is that better guidance than what Allah revealed to his messenger? Tell me that, how is that? This is get straight to the crux of the matter. This is what it really boils down to. How is that? How can you leave that for this? Makes no sense. So this is the shubha of the jahmiyyah. Right? We now see exactly where this has come from. This is batil. This is ta'atil. This is, you know, uh, amount to basically saying that Allah, Allah Azawajal, uh, or the Messenger of Allah, you know, that He was speaking these words and either, either He didn't know the truth, either the Messenger didn't know the truth, so instead of saying, instead of saying to this Ummah, Allah is not in a location, not in a direction. He is not a Johar. He is not a Jism. He is not an Arad. He is not subject to Hawadith. He is not above. He is not below. He is not in Tahayyus. He is not in Makan. He is not Jihad. So instead of the Messenger saying this language, which they believe is the truth, the Messenger instead said, Ar Rahmanu al Arshistawa. And all these verses which speak about Allah being above. So either the Messenger didn't know the truth, and he consistently used language that opposed the truth. Either this is the case, or the messenger knew the truth, so he knew that the truth really is Allah is not a jism, not a johar, not an arad, not subject to hawadith, not above, not below, not behind, not after, not in tahiyyas, not in makan, not in jahiyyas. So he knew all this, but deliberately now, he said other than what the truth was. Right? Or he was unable to express the right words. All of these three are the implications of what these people are upon. That's why I said to you at the beginning the messengers are A'lam. Yes, A'lam. And they are Afsah, most local, and they are Ansah. Right? They know the truth and they expressed it with full eloquence and they desired guidance. To, for the people to whom they were sent. The reality of the saying of the Ash'arin Maturidi is, is that either the messengers were ignorant of the truth, or they were unable to express the truth, or they were, but they chose not to. In which case they weren't really desiring guidance for the Ummah. Why is it that they consistently said, why is it in the Quran that the messenger, uh, Allah revealed and the messenger consistently used language that to them is tashbih and tajseem, and kufr 
And not once did he stop and say to anybody, like when he said, for example, to the slave girl, where is Allah? She said, above the throne. Why didn't the messenger say, ah, but yes, he's not a jism. Not in a makan, not in a location. Why didn't he say that? And why is it that when he recited the verses of Allah Azza wa Jal, Ar-Rahmanu al-Arsh istawa. Oh, but he's not in a location. He's not subject to hawadith. Don't believe that it's kufr and tadseem. Why do you say that? Why all that's missing? Right? So either the messenger intended guidance for his nation, or he didn't. Either he had knowledge of guidance, or he didn't. Which one is it? Tell me which one is it. And you see that the reality of their position is that the messengers didn't know the truth, or they knew the truth but couldn't explain it, or if they were able to explain it, they basically weren't sincere to the people and told them something else, told them lies. Right? So, so the answer to that question uh, about Allah's ulu, this is something that is established by the Qur'an, by the Sunnah and by Ijma' and even their scholars, even their great scholars like Imam al-Jawaini, Abu al-Mu'ali al-Jawaini, there's a beautiful narration where um, uh, he was asked a question by a common person, where is Allah? And he started rambling and you know going round in circles and this and the other, whatever. And so one of the people of the Sunnah who was present said, leave all this, stop all this nonsense, just be straight. Why is it that when the people want to turn to Allah, and they want to make dua to Him, that they turn towards the heaven? Explain that. So Abu al-Mu'ali al-Juwaini, he basically, he, he, he goes, uh, I think the person narrating was al-Hamadani. He goes, Hayyarani al-Hamadani, Hayyarani al-Hamadani. He goes, Hamadani is confused me, I'm, I'm, I'm confused, I'm confused. This is al-Juwaini, one of their great scholars, unable to answer this question. The fitra always turns to above. So leave all this rambling that you're doing, just answer straight, give straight answer. And he's got confused, couldn't answer. Right? Because this is the truth. The hearts turn towards above because Allah is above. Allah is above his creation. Right? So this matter is established by Quran, established by Sunnah, established by Ijma, established by Fitra, established by Aqal. All of these roots, Allah being above the creation, is established. No one denies it except a vile, filthy jahn. Right? Just to make it clear, this is very important, we must say this. We do not make takfir of the Maturidis or the Ash'aris. We do not make takfir of them. Right, so make this clear because one of the arguments is that they say, ah, oh, the Salafis declare us and our scholars to be kuffar. No, we don't. Wallahi, we don't. Because from our principles is that a person may believe something or a person may do something which in and of itself might entail disbelief. But that does not mean that the person himself is automatically a disbeliever. Because there are reasons why a person might be saying that. Maybe he has a shubha. Maybe he has a misconception. Maybe he has a jahl. All of these are legitimate barriers to withholding from taqbeer of a person. And these usul that we have in this topic are taken from the Quran and the Sunnah. There was a man, as mentioned in the hadith, who out of the fear of Allah, he ordered his children to burn him, take his ashes, and to go in all different directions and to scatter them so that Allah couldn't raise him. Because he was so scared for his sins. Right? So this person is denying the qudra of Allah essentially. But when Allah raised him, 
And he said to him, why did you do what you do? The man said, out, out of fear of you, oh, oh my Lord. So Allah forgave him, right? This man was not a disbeliever. Because out of jahl, he just genuinely believed that maybe Allah is not able, that if some of my dust is in this place, and some of it is in the ocean, and some of it is over there, Allah will not be able to bring all that together. Right? Because he didn't want to be punished for his sins. But this man was forgiven. This man was not a kafir for denying the qudra of Allah. Because jahl now, jahl is excused because of his jahl. So jahl is an excuse. Many ashari's, maturidis, they are ignorant of the affairs that we mentioned in this talk. Most of them. The majority of them don't know history. They don't know why their school is upon what it is upon. Right? They're upon jahl. Many of them have shubuhat, misconceptions, a shubha, a false ta'wil, a faulty understanding. This is also a legitimate barrier to making takfir. So this is what we believe. We believe that the Ash'aris, Maturidis, they are amongst the Muslimin. It is permissible to pray, you know, uh, you know to, 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 because the hujjah has not been established uh, upon the specific individual, we pray behind them. And uh, as for making takfir of them, it is only when the hujjah is established, meaning we have an individual now, he comes to us. We explain to him all the proofs and evidences Right? About the truth, about the true belief, and explain to him the true meanings of the ayat, and he understands them and knows, yes, indeed, this is the way of the salaf. And then out of juhud, he, he you know, denies all of that. It's after jahl has been removed and after shubha has been removed. But we know that these maturidis and asharis, they have shubhat, so many shubhat, their minds are intoxicated with this kalam, and we, we would not really make the fear of them. Right? We, have to, we have to establish the proof, we have to establish guidance, we have to spread the mouth above the salah first of all amongst the common folk till it becomes established and known so that their opposition can be made clear. That we do not make, the, we do not make takfir of them. Uh, but that does not stop us from saying your statement is a statement of the Jahmiyyah. You are in agreement with the Mu'tazila. Right? We can say this because that is the truth. Because that in reality is what their state, what their position is. Um, yeah, there there are some excellent works in the Arabic language, and I'm not aware that maybe they are in other other languages as well. On the Maturidiya, uh, one of them is a three-volume work by. Shamsuddin uh, al-Afghani it's really the only authoritative work that exists on the history and the doctrines and the beliefs and foundations of the Maturidis so if that is in another language by all means benefit from it it's a very beneficial a very very beneficial source uh, he's from Afghanistan yeah. so I want because obviously his native language is Pashto so he has other works in that so I want to yeah. it's recognized by other yeah, yeah he has other language he has other works as well uh uh, on the Hanafis uh, in general, um, the Hanafis and uh, how 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 they because the Hanafis historically speaking, uh, they they have some praiseworthy stances, for example, towards the grave worshippers, things like that. So we have to understand that the, the Hanafis described to uh, Imam Abu Hanifa, they split into many different groups. There's all sorts amongst them. There's Hanafi Jahmiyyah. Hanifi Mu'tazila, Hanifi Rafida, Hanifi, you know, Mushabbiha, Hanifi Karramiya wa Mujassima, Hanifi Karramiya. You have all sorts of people, you know. 
But amongst the Hanifis are those who are praiseworthy, um, you know, learned scholars who spoke with fairness and justice. Uh, many of them they spoke well of Sheikh Islam ibn Taymiyyah, they defended Sheikh Islam ibn Taymiyyah, uh, Badruddin al-Aini, Mullah Ali al-Qari, right? So we have to understand that amongst the Hanafis there are like fanatics. There are fanatics out there who ascribe to the, this madhab, right? And there are others who are basically who are, who are just and fair and honest and speak with knowledge and they have good words, they have good statements. So I, I believe that he's also compiled some works uh, regarding how the Hanafis they fought against grave worship. Yeah, so there are some beneficial uh, works that you can, you can benefit from, inshallah ta'ala. Yeah. See, the Salaf understood when this poison came into the Ummah, the poison of Ilmul Kalam, they clearly understood the effect of this upon the hearts of the servants. Because the knowledge of Allah, knowledge of His names, knowledge of His attributes, is something that inculcates in the hearts of the people. These feelings of love and hope and fear and reliance and so on and so forth, right? So for example, if you know that Allah is a Lord who becomes pleased, you will strive to please Him. If you know that the Lord is one who becomes angry, you will strive to keep away from His anger, right? If you know that there is a Lord who is Al-Alim, Al-Raqib, Al-Khabir, one who is informed, all knowledgeable, well aware, you will strive to, you know, to, to, to be observant and make muraqaba. So all the knowledge regarding Allah, His names and attributes gives life to the hearts. Gives life to the hearts. Now if you come along and you say, Allah is not described with anything. He is la shayt. Basically, you've cut off the hearts of the creation from Allah. And if you say, and then it, so basically, the more this ta'atil increases, the more you start negating, the more the hearts are cut off from their Lord. And the Salaf recognized that this was the end result of the deen of the Jahmiyyah. And that's why they were so severe against the Jahmiyyah. It erodes and undermines belief in Allah. Belief in his names, belief in his attributes, and the attachment of the hearts to Allah. It is life to the hearts, this ilm and this knowledge. So this poison of ilmul kalam, which entered into the ummah, and began to distort and make tahrif of the book of Allah, and negate the traditions of the messenger of Allah, all of this basically is an assault upon the faith of the people, and cutting off their ties with Allah Azza wa Jalla. This is why it is an extremely, extremely, extremely important uh, topic and subject. And in fact, mistakes, not just in names and attributes, but because of this ilmul kalam, there were mistakes in so many different areas as well. It affects other areas of, 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 of uh, knowledge as well, and not just the issue of names and the attributes. There's some technical questions. What does it mean that the Quran is Kadim no Hadithul Ahad? This is like really a technical question. Um, we won't really go into that. Um, requires a lot of detail, a lot of background. Um, I think that's it really, as you can see.
What are the books recommended for a beginner student in the area of names and attributes of Allah? Al Qawaidul Muthla of Shaykh Ibn Thaymeen, Rahimahullah Ta'ala, likewise Sharh Aqidatul Wasitiyah, and the various explanations of that book. Uh, they're a good starting point. And the beginning part of a Tadmuriya with a suitable explanation has really excellent, uh, the book here, has really excellent. Uh, Principles at the beginning by Sheikh Uslam Ibn Taymiyyah, at the beginning part of it in specific, those are some good uh, starting points for you to uh, start with. But Al Qawaid Al Mufla is very good uh, as, a, as a starting point, inshallah ta'ala. Okay, some of them, uh, these questions, they require lengthy answers. Uh, I think we can round off at this point and I'm not sure what is the schedule now because it's half past 11 I believe our brother uh, Salim was due to do a talk I'm not sure what the situation is now <laughs> and I apologise for going on for too long uh, my apologies uh, any anything really Yeah, this is the thing to be careful about, which is translation of the Qur'an. And um, when we have people like you know, the Rafida or the Jahmiya or the Qadiyaniya, translation of the Qur'an, translation maybe of other stuff, you have to be careful because these people will inject that poison into their translation of the, you know, of, of, of the Qur'an. So... Uh, just to, just to be careful about translations of, 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 of text and in particular uh, the, the Quran. And this is something through history. This happened through history. It happened with the Mu'tazila. The Mu'tazila, many of them became experts in the Arabic language. And they injected into the Arabic language some of their ideas. And likewise in the books of Tafsir, like Azamakhshari. Right in making tafsir of the Quran, they injected much of their of their poison. We have to be very very careful what we are reading and what the source, who are the translators and who are the producers of that uh, material, especially in uh, uh, translation. So yeah, that, that's that's a valid point. You have, you have to be careful. Yeah, yeah, yeah. From their lies and this Allah have mercy upon him. They keep saying that Mutemiya said that Allah has risen, but. No, this is kadib. This is uh, this is this is kadib. Just if you, you describe to Allah that He is a majassim, and He said Allah has a jism. All of these are lies and fabrications against Ibn Taymiyyah, and the reason is that Ibn Taymiyyah came at a time uh, when the people had departed from the way of the Salaf, and he connected the Ummah back to the Salaf, right? And he played a great role in refuting the Rafida, the philosophers, the Ahlul Kalam, the Jahmiya. Right, and he brought people back to the way of the Salaf. And many of these people, they acknowledge that Imam Ibn Taymiyyah was a mountain in knowledge, that he was superior to them in knowledge. Right, but it was bigotry, it was bigotry to their school that prevented them from accepting the truth. And many of them, they plotted against him, they had him imprisoned, and so on and so forth. But all of these things are basically lies against Shaykh Islam Ibn Taymiyyah. If you want more details, just go to ibn Taymiyyah.com. You'll find a series of articles specifically on this point about the claim that he said that you know that Allah is a jism. 
This is blatantly false. Rather, in his in his in his all of his books, he says that this statement that Allah is a jism, and likewise not a jism. Both of these are innovations in Islam. We neither say this nor do we say that. This is clear in so many of his works. In you know, in in his writings on uh, in Majmul uh, Fatawa, uh, the initial first few volumes on Aqidah, likewise Dar Ta'arud Alaqul Wa Naqal. Uh, in all these books of his it's very clear and apparent that he said this many many times even in this book Nabuwat Safadiyah in all these books apparent so this is a clear fabrication upon Ibn Taymiyyah that he says that Allah is a jism really what the reality is that Ibn Taymiyyah was a very sophisticated uh, person who understood the arguments he understood what the philosophers were trying to say he understood the Ahlul Kalam what they were trying to say he understood their arguments against them and their arguments against them Right? And he knew the Jahmiyyah, Mu'tazila, the, the people of Kalam, the people of the Sunnah. He knew their arguments against them, and their arguments against them, and their counters against them. He knew all of that in detail. So sometimes these people, they're unable to understand what is Ibn Taymiyyah talking about. Right? They can't follow the argument. Right? Sometimes he's quoting someone else, and they think it's Ibn Taymiyyah speaking. Right? They can't follow. Right? And many of their mistakes, and many of their slanders are basically of this type. Right? They're unable to follow the, the course of the argument that Ibn Taymiyyah is making. He's not actually saying what you think he's saying. Do you understand? Right? So these are fabrications and lies against Ibn Taymiyyah that you know, he said Allah is a jism. There's no such thing. Rather, he rejected that and denied that and said, both of these statements are an innovation. Allah is a jism and Allah is not a jism. We don't use innovative language either in affirmation or in negation. We only stick to the Quran and to the Sunnah. Who said this? As far as I've come across, I've not, I've not come across that. But what I've come across is that he's discussing uh, the Karramiya, because the Karramiya said Allah is a jism, la kal ajsam, la kal ajsam. Right? That Allah is a jism, but we don't mean like the bodies. We just mean like a qaimun bi nafsih. Just means something that has its own existence. This is what we mean. We don't mean a body like the bodies that we see, but we just mean uh, that which is qaimun bi nafsihi, something which is exists on, on, on itself. So even amongst the Ash'aris and Maturidis, you will see them discussing this issue and saying, yeah, if this is what they mean, there's no problem with that. I've read from, from, their, from their writings that even they have, uh, have this issue that if this is what they mean, that they just mean qa'imun binafsi, uh, like that or whatever else, then there's no issue with that, right? So I've not come across that specific statement that you said, uh, but yeah, yeah, okay. It'd be interesting to read, yeah. How many sects amongst the people of Kalam, you mean? Oh, are you asking how many sects are there all together? Okay. Um, well, we've been told in the narration that the Ummah will split uh, into 73 sects. Many of the, some scholars have tried to list them all. There are books which are written uh, historically trying to list all of the 73 sects. But the reality is that there's no 
you know, it, it's not possible to really say that these are the 73 because there are likely more than 73. But perhaps there are like foundations that each of those 73 go back to, right? There are foundations that all, all of those sects actually go back to. But if we were to try to enumerate, you know, one, two, three, four, all, all to where the 73, there'd probably be more than 73, much more than 73. So it's a, very, it's, it's a matter that's very difficult to speak about uh, because um, it, it's hard to comprehend and enumerate all the different groups and sects and trace their sayings. And so it's a difficult matter. And the scholars generally haven't gone out of their way to basically list what these 73 sects are. Some people have done it. There are books historically, but it's a very difficult task to, 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 to do. And then you're also bound by history as well because there's time going to come after you and you don't know. Yeah, so it's, it's a difficult area, Lano's West. Okay, inshallah, we can conclude uh, there for today, inshallah ta'ala. Uh, we thank the organizers and all the attendees for attending, for your patience. And inshallah ta'ala, perhaps on another occasion, uh, we can do something more uh, detailed and extensive. Uh, so, uh, with that... الحمد لله رب العالمين وصلى الله على نبينا محمد وعلى آله وصحبه أجمعين وجزاكم الله خيرا